0: Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm excited today. I normally am always excited about my guests, but more excited than ever because I'm interviewing one of my favorite guys in the world who apparently has been ignoring me for 30 years, Lou Schneider, who is an executive producer, co-executive producer, chief cook, bottle washer, of many different shows on television that you have loved throughout the years and today including the mother lode everybody loves raymond and of course the new hit show on abc critically acclaimed as well the goldbergs but normally i come here and i sit down with my guest and it's a time because you got to do these things in your spare time because if you don't you don't really have a business So about an hour ago, I'm in the water, and I'm surfing in in the ocean with my kids. And then I'm rushing with half a, uh, what do you call it, a a surf suit, wetsuit on. I'm I'm pulling off the wetsuit in the car as I'm driving. I've got sand all over me. Uh, I'm drying off. I'm changing nude in a parking lot and valet downstairs, rushing upstairs. I'm still late, but yet I get here probably 20 minutes late And I think as I'm rushing up the elevator and how do you rush up an elevator? I don't know what that happens, but I was rushing in the elevator for some reason. I'm running down the hallway. I'm like putting my T-shirt on. I'm, you know, as best I can. I look like some guy who's just been caught having a one night stand with a girl who's married and she's been caught and I'm rushing out of the house, but I'm actually rushing to this thing. I'm thinking, oh my God, I can't believe I'm 20 minutes late. Vince Lombardi had that famous quote which I love, which if you remember it, it was like, if you're early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late. And if you're late, don't bother showing up. And, but I had to show up because we set this aside. It's Saturday, we're doing this thing and I'm 20 minutes late and I'm coming upstairs. And what normally happens, everybody, when you're late? If you have a date, let's say, and you're late for 20 minutes and the girl you pick up, let's just say, not good. Not good, everybody. The chances of you getting some action are slim and none and slim left town. So that would probably be the best time when you go to the movie to say, one please, because you're not going to be getting anything anyway. But I come up here and I think to myself, God, this is horrible. They're going to be so upset at me. What am I going to do? How am I going to? And I just walk in, and and there's Lou, and there's his wife, Liz, and they're happy, and they're kind, and they're calm, and they're relaxed, and they're wonderful. And Liz hugs me so tight, I literally felt like a tube of toothpaste. My, my head was about to pop off. She just hugged me so tight. And this woman, she, she says she's 52. It's unbelievable how beautiful and sexy this woman is. And then I meet Lou. Not good. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Lou is in great shape. He's got abs and muscles. And, you know, he doesn't even have elbow fat. You know that elbow thing when you bend your elbow and you can pinch the elbow? He doesn't even have that. It's it's it, You know somebody's working out a lot when they literally have 0% body fat in their elbow. The main thing... I know I always sit down and I always think to myself, what am I going to say? And each time I sit down and I think to myself, what am I going to say? And how is it going to be relevant to what we're talking about and to our lives and, and not just personally and in business? I think one of the things I think about when I sit across from Lou Schneider is something I'm not embarrassed to say that I've mentioned more than a few times on the podcast and I It's something that I remember Carol Liefer telling me. She said that after she was hired on Seinfeld by Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld, she was curious all year long, like, why they hired her. You know, there were all these amazing writers who had lists and tons of credits, and they didn't even interview them. They didn't even want them. They hired a bunch of younger writers, and at the time she was younger in the business, but she never asked the question until the end of the season and when she finally sat down with Jerry and Larry and she said, yeah, I just was curious, you know, what, why did you hire me as opposed to all these other people with all this experience? And they looked at her and they said, because you're an easy hang and Lou Schneider is an easy hang lou schneider is beyond an easy hang lou schneider is like literally the kind of guy who just you know it's like when you go in like like a mattress store and you try out mattresses or you're like the old jewish guy in the hotel with jackie mason says and you sit in the chair and you're like oh oh this is this this is a nice chair This is a really nice chair. And that's what you feel like when you're around Lou Schneider. It's just, it's, it's like, I I just have to tell you this. If you never met Lou Schneider, you would be comparing Lou Schneider to people in your life that you know, who are the nicest people in your life. And they would look like Cruella DeVille next to this person they would look like just a horrible horrible person because Lou has always been nice he's always been nice he's always been good I've never seen him lose his temper I've never heard anyone in the business ever say anything bad about Lou Schneider now what happens when you're nice does it always work out for you Are you always working? Do sometimes you walk around life and say, wait a second, it's been 11 months. How come if I'm such a nice guy, I don't have a job? And the thing about the business and the way it works, not just this business, any business, you know, there's a balance always between being a nice guy and figuring out how to work consistently and sometimes if you're an artist and a great person in any profession when things aren't going your way you tend to go down the bad path you tend to be in a situation where you think to yourself god you know uh, you start second guessing yourself well I, I thought I was a nice guy I mean I thought I thought I do great work but apparently I apparently I don't Apparently, I'm only getting offered jobs on Disney shows right now, because I don't have the goods anymore. Maybe I'm maybe I lost it. Maybe I'm not funny anymore. Maybe I'm not relevant. But the thing is, is that if you are one of those nice people, it's important to know that that's not the case. The way the world works is, you can't possibly all every nice person in the world who does great work can't possibly work every month of their life unless they're in the business where they're writing the checks. But when you're a writer or a co-executive producer or an executive producer, sadly, you rely on other people's money. You rely on other people writing the checks. And yes, there's a lot of jobs out there, but sometimes people look at a certain show that you've done and they're like, okay, well... You know, he was on Everybody Loves Raymond, and yes, that was a great show, and yes, it was a top 50 show, and yes, he was an executive producer, but I don't know, you know, I don't, the tone of Everybody Loves Raymond is not the tone of the shows that are on television now. I mean, can he, can he work on our show? I mean, is he going to be, I mean, I know he can do that kind of show, and which is great here at Disney. We'd love to have you, Lou but I don't know if he can write for these shows that are on today that are so relevant now that people are, are talking about. And then when you finally find a show that sort of balances the everybody loves Raymond tone and maybe an edgier tone, there's a lot of guys who worked on these shows that are looking for jobs. And then it becomes a relationship game. Are you in a relationship with this person? Do you get along with this person? Do you have this existing thing where this person will vouch for you? This person will fight for you. And sometimes that's where being a nice guy really means a lot because of the relationships you form over time. When you're growing up and hanging out in college and after college in Chicago, and there's certain people who also hang out in Chicago who happen to be the star of the television show you are now working on. It helps in relationships to treat people as great as possible on the way up. So when maybe you're not working three, four, five, seven, eight, ten, eleven months, there's always a guy out there when a job opens who's going to fight for you and talk highly of you and tell the people that they have to hire you, even though technically there might be seven people who might be more qualified, might have more shows under their belt like that might have worked with these other producers much more. But the key is If you are a nice person and you're always a nice person, even in the rough times, you know that the relationships you have are always there and someday they will come to play and they will come back and help you. And Jeff Garland, if he were sitting here today, now it could be argued, you know, because we're not there. I'm not there. I don't see what's happening behind the scenes. So I'm just speculating. But what I am speculating is, is that it might not have been 100% of the reason why Lou Schneider got the job he so well deserved on the Goldbergs, but it certainly isn't 1%. And so there's a percentage of influence there. And then Lou Schneider has to go in and even in the credits he has and the shows he's done, he's probably done, God knows, 200 episodes of television, maybe 300 400 something like that believe it or not you know when he does this deal with the network do you think they say hey great to have you here Lou all shows produced no no if he's lucky he got 13 shows guaranteed if he's lucky so what does that mean that means he's got to go in and no matter what the relationships are he's got to go into rooms where there's certain people in those rooms That didn't want to hire lou schneider he may not even know who those people are but he has to walk in and he has to be nice and he has to do extraordinary work and you know how lou keeps getting the contract going and keeps getting extended because when i asked lou schneider to do the show he said um okay i'd I'd love to do the show you got any dates in january i said january i don't understand well, I work on, I'm on the floor and I work a lot of hours and I get there early. I try to get there early. I try to stay as late as I possibly can. And I want to, I want to be there for every single thing, every single scene on the floor. And I want to be there because I want to make sure that, that the show is as good as it can be with the great team we have. And, and I want to contribute as much as I can, more than I'm expected to. And I thought to myself after he hung up, wow. Nicest guy in the world, but still has to go in and prove himself every day and doesn't have a sense of entitlement, doesn't have a sense of, oh, well, I got this gig and I can just mail it in. When things don't go well for him on the set or somebody treats him like shit in a back room that nobody sees, but he sees, he takes the bullet, he takes the hit and kills them with kindness. And so my advice to all of you, everybody, is that Yes, I've said it many times before, relationships on the way up all through your life, treat people right. And if you haven't had a chance to treat people right or you did somebody wrong, clean it up. Clean it up now, today. Take them out to dinner. Do whatever you can. Write them a handwritten note. Thank them. Tell them you're sorry. I did something yesterday that was bad, real bad. Email does not reflect tone. And I must have sent three apologies already in the past 24 hours, and I'm finally getting that person around to believing that I'm sorry, which I am sincerely. Treat people right. Be good to everybody. Have great relationships. And I guarantee you all, you'll have the kind of successful career and successful personal life that Lou Schneider has. And believe me, everybody, I wish that all on you because it's the greatest gift you could ever have in your life.
2: Here we go in three, two. We
1: ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Cats and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water.
0: I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking.
1: Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on.
3: What? Huh? How about the
0: air? So just go to BarryKatz.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, as Dennis Leary would say an embarrassing thing used to say about me, the largest Jew in captivity. and Today, that might be true. I'm excited about today. We're going to have a great time. We're going to learn a lot about life and business and what it's like to balance a career and a personal life and what it's like to go through your career as one of the nicest people and most talented people around. So, Without further ado, I'd like to introduce you, Lou. I hope you don't mind. You might fall asleep again during this, but I will do my best. Lou Schneider began his professional career in Chicago while taking classes in improvisational technique at the Second City Players Workshop. He began performing as a stand-up comedian. He toured extensively for five years, appearing in clubs and colleges across the country prior to relocating to New York in 1988. In the fall of 89, Schneider landed his first regular television job as the host of the Nick game show make the grade the next year was cast as the lead in a cbs summer series entitled wish you were here which was wonderful following that short run he was cast as a series regular on the Fox Network comedy Down the Shore. After starring in his own HBO half-hour comedy special, he began writing for TV in 1993. I don't know why, great actor, funny, funny guy on screen. His credits include American Dad, The New Adventures of Old Christine, the Peabody Award-winning Men of a Certain Age, and nine years as a writer and executive producer on the Emmy Award-winning CBS comedy Everybody Loves Raymond. Raymond. Presently, he is one of the co-executive producers and occasional director of ABC's successful half-hour comedy, The Goldbergs. Lou and his wife, Liz Abby have three very tall sons and have been successfully married for 35 years, and which is truly amazing because they're both 40. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, a guy who I love dearly and I have so much respect for, Lou Schneider.
3: Oh, thank you, Barry. I'm such a fan of the podcast. I love it. Get out. <laughs> yes, no. Don't you, lie to me. No, Barry. I know you've done many things, but I did not know that this was your calling. Like I listened, I'm such a fan of the podcast. I've listened to so many of these. I'm just going to do a clip show. I'm just going to do quotes from other people's podcasts. Just like so you're just going to get pieces of Amy Intercasso Davis and David Friendly and David Kissinger and Mike Royce and Gallagher and Phil Rosenthal and my and um and uh, both Chris Thompson's, the one before, and then the one after, it's going to be great. It, uh, so, and I'm also going to get to do my Barry Katz impression. I'm so excited. I only do three impressions. I do my three showbiz impressions are uh, Barry Katz. I'm so excited <laughs> to have Lou Schneider here today. He's a, a, a relationships. If I had a truth serum, if you put a a, a true serum in me i would say lou schneider is as good a friend to uh to me as i am to lou schneider whatever that means i'm a big jew and i then, feel
0: like that's i feel like i sound like carol o'connor in the heat of the night what is that that's uh is that like more true
3: movie references i've never seen that movie i don't even know but then i also do i'm sad I'm Wanda Sykes and I'm sad. That's the other one. and Because you work for nine years, you have to, oh, why, why bring it up? That's it. Cats is doing a podcast. Close the doors. It's over. All right. So that's it. Now I've done my impressions. Now I'm
0: ready to talk about, I'm not really ready to talk about me, actually. You did it already. I just can't believe that you listen to all these shows. What are you doing? Don't you have a life? You said I work out. It's a beautiful way to kill an entire week of working out. These shows are two hours
3: long. <laughs> if you take out the cash card by the way my cash card payment system isn't working properly who do I talk to about that I, Michael Purcell yeah, I have talked to Michael Purcell I know he came to you he was the only guy I know he said he has this thing and if I write 100,000 checks a year like 30 cents a check I can't even do the math by the time I get I'm just stretching during that point of the, of the podcast but then I get into you know legs I know I'm supposed to start doing legs during Barry's no one ever does legs really but I know you're supposed to do them while Barry's doing his rambling intro and then when you find finally introduce the guest. I'm ready to just sort of cool down. I never actually get to the
0: podcast. <laughs> I listen. I love it. Barry, I love the podcast. Honestly, I'm I'm not fishing for anything. No. I just I'm just trying to understand what is it that's I don't know. I
3: don't know who this podcast is for. I think it's for me. I mean, it's <laughs> so ridiculous. I'm like, I, by the way, I do have a problem with a little bit of a problem with this because I I'm not a giant like I do hate people who think they're great. So, um so, the podcast is a, is the doorway to for people to walk into the I think I'm great club so i uh, this is all gonna be nauseating for me later when I listen to this because I'm like, "Oh I sounded like I like myself, so that's not gonna be good but uh, i it's I learn something every time, like David Kissinger, I always want to know what's it like to have your father be the Secretary of State. He told a great story. Mike Royce is like the you 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 nail the essence of people's experiences and you stress the things that uh, and here's one of the reasons you're so great. You say everything I agree with. <laughs> so I like the idea that you have to, like, you can't take a playoff. I don't know. I don't know where that, ex- I mean, that expression is a, a sports expression, but you can't in in, in our lives, in, in what we're doing, y- you got to go to work. You have to put your nose to the grindstone and go, like just go to work every day. Don't worry about what other people are doing. Go to work. And I get that from you. And I, so I need that little affirmation. I guess that's what I'm saying. I need the two hour long affirmation and Tracy Morgan interstitial
0: (laughs) quote in the credits to get myself up and going in the morning. That's it. That was one thing that you can play back to yourself is that you have to go to work every day and I mean that's what people lose sight of because you take hits and and there's things that happen that are really tough and I have certain people that I'm working with that are going through some amazingly difficult things yet they're still in a great position and they still have tons of money and they still are doing a great job but they're just certain variables and things happen you can't control. An example of something, I look at this This is really, truly the essence of it. You worked your way through Everybody Loves Raymond, through every credit. You probably started as the gaffer. I started as co-producer. Co-producer. I turned
3: down, my agent told me, you have to take the Jeff Foxworthy show. You have to take the Jeff Foxworthy. I was offered two jobs at the same time. I was offered Foxworthy because I'd worked with Foxworthy on the road and I loved his joke writing and we were, you know, okay, relationships, everybody. Yeah. And so I like, and, and they said, you know, Jeff would love you to come on the show. And so they were offering, I think, thirty five hundred dollars more a show than Raymond. And I
0: thought. And And what was the credit on Fox Supervising producer, I think. Why don't you tell our audience, because I think a lot of them lose sight of this, in television, (laughs) the level of producers starting from the lowest rung on the totem pole all the way to executive producer.
3: Yeah, there... They're just various designations held by the Writers
0: Guild, I believe. So it's okay. So it starts at staff writer and then it goes to story editor. Actually, it starts with something that's normally the first job of any young writer. Normally, if they're lucky, they get to be the. Writer's assistant. Yes. Oh, my God. By the way, that's harder than being a writer because think about it.
3: There are 12 writers in a room or 14 writers in a room. There are probably only three or four writer's assistants on the show. So why everyone thinks it's so great to – I think you have a better chance of writing something and getting in there as a as a staff writer than you do as a writer's assistant. And the, by the way, there's no – I don't think there's any great translation between the writer's assistant skills and writing. Like you can be a great writer's assistant because a lot of that is clerical. It is
0: clerical. A lot of times you're just sitting in the writer's room And sometimes now they have the board that people write on. You can see it blown up on. I forget what that's called. You can see what you're doing on a big board. And they're typing everything, and they're just typing every idea that comes out and putting it together and organizing it for other people. But it's a very, very important position. It doesn't get a lot of respect, but if you're great at it, you'll always move up. Right,
3: because if you are great, it shows you're a smart young person generally, and you are capable and confident and uh, and able to sort of... uh, Take in a lot of information right away and and, and organize it in, in, a, in a cogent fashion. So those poor people do uh, slave labor, and then they get the privilege of hanging around writers, which is so great. And then those people who treat them terribly eventually shouldn't and will read their scripts, and hopefully those people will then get a chance to become – a staff writer, and then maybe a story editor is the next line and next rung. And then after that, executive story editor, then co-producer, then producer, then supervising producer, then co-executive producer, then
0: executive producer. That's right. And so when you look at the Goldbergs and you see a show and it's airing, you notice it says co-executive producer Lou Schneider. Mm. Now he's a co-executive producer here but he was an executive producer on Raymond. So when you're going and you're working, no matter what Lou tells me, and he's not going to say anything about this, never going to say anything about this, when you get offered the gig, even though you haven't necessarily worked in a year or whatever it is, and the offer comes in and the credit comes in, you say to yourself alone in the fetal position, wait a second, credit's don't cost anything. There's no charge for a credit, but somebody's fighting for me. Somebody's offering me a job. I'm being offered this amount of money. I'm being offered this credit and I have a choice. I can have my agents and lawyers go back and say, hey, we'd like to counter this. We'd like to ask for this and this credit. Or if you don't want to rock the boat and you don't want to take any risks at this point in your life, you say, fuck it. We'll take the credit the way it is, and I will get to that executive producer credit soon enough, and all anybody will ever remember me for when this show is done, is that I will be an executive producer?
3: Yeah, I took co- I took consulting producer, and I took consulting producer, and supposedly my I guess my contract said I was working three days a week, but I was working five days a week, and you're not supposed to do that. That's dirty pool, but it was sort of my way to get back in the game. That I want was I still gonna? I, it was you know it was one of those moments where you say, um, am I gonna? sort of stand on appearances and say oh, I used to be uh, this guy or am I still in the am I still in the game well show, you know it's like when a ball player I always make this analogy I think it's like when a ball player who's come off an injury um, or had a bad year they give him a one-year contract that's incentive laden and then you take f- f- shorter term and then they have to pay you if you do a great job and make yourself indispensable I don't know if I was indispensable but uh, I was good enough at least that then they had to pay Undeniable. Well, you use your words. I use my words. <laughs> so anyway, the Raymond thing. My my uh, agent said take Foxworthy, and I said that's awfully nice of you. It's more money. That's very nice. I couldn't write that show. At all. I, I, I don't know how I would write it, but this not, it wasn't that. It was just I really knew that I could write The Raymond Show. He was living my life. I knew Ray was, an un, as you say, an undeniable talent. Phil Rosenthal was a great writer. And, and the
0: creator and the executive producer of the show.
3: Exactly. And I'd worked with Phil. He'd been a writer on a show that I'd been an actor on, and I'd hung He'd around with him. worked with, with Phil,
0: everybody, relationships. Right. And so uh, I remember Phil saying— A lot of people worked with Phil—
3: yeah, they all we all
0: a lot of people uh, work with phil in the past
3: yes he's been kind to everybody they all work he hired everybody don't barry don't try to make it seem like i did something and it was exclusive anyway a liar so, uh, never mind liz punch barry <laughs> so anyway uh i um so so uh so phil said do you know ray romano he, he's you know you know you you know each other and he said spoke highly of you and i said yeah ray is the best and so we'd worked together in new york a million times and and I'd gone through what he had gone through. I'd been a comic who got a sitcom. And I think there was, I, I guess I was like the the goat that hung around with Sea Biscuit. You know, it could make him comfortable. And um, so uh, I came in uh, and worked on the pilot of Everybody Loves Raymond. And uh, Ray was great. And uh, the, sh- the cast was amazing. And so
0: that show went and I was working for $3,500 less. And your credit was? Co-producer. Co-producer, everybody. What was your credit at the end of the show, nine years later? Well, it was executive producer. What does executive that mean? Executive producer. What does that really mean? And how many people started on the first year of the show that weren't there nine years later, Lou?
3: Well, a, a few of us. I mean, that was the beauty of that There were that a lot group. of
0: people that didn't make it the nine years ah,
3: later. Ah, there were some, but man, most of us. A lot of a, a core group came in in year three Three, including Mike Royce and Aaron Shore, and Lou, But Scro and I were there Lou, from the beginning. Year
0: one. How many people were there from year? Let's talk one about to the cash nine. card.
3: Where do I get my cash <laughs> card refilled? Is it a refill situation? Do I? Is it a magnetic stripe? I got <laughs> to talk to my person. How many
0: people from the first year were there in year nine? Barry, the kids don't want to hear about
3: this. I don't know. Five. I five six. I don't know. I I I don't know. Okay.
0: I don't know. Are you a nice guy? Nicer than you.
3: You sent me to the you sent me to the Old Port Tavern. Actually, did you? Actually, I like that gig. That was actually pretty good. Barry used to book me in Boston. I'm looking. I'm looking into the camera. It's a still camera. It's oh no, running video. Barry, I used used to book me in Boston. We have to talk about all this, Barry. We have to go do the part where you go. Let's go way back. <laughs> do the part where you go. Let's go way. Back. The Brookline map, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Tell me about it. It. You didn't have shoes. There are no shoes. You were Sheriff Crawford. What was going on? Tobacco Road. Tell me all about it. <laughs> Let's do that.
0: Do, do it, Barry. Come. No, I tell you what. For this one time, I would like you to be me and say that statement.
3: Okay. Truth serum. You're sitting on the couch. Someone sticks a needle in your arm. You have to tell the truth. Lou, way back. Go back. It says you're born You're born in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. What was that like? Well, messy. Um, come on. You can do better than that. That's a terrible joke. Everybody has that. that. That's like That's a Boston quality joke at two in the morning. That's Sam's late in the evening. Don't do that joke. Okay. All right. So play it again, Sam's Barry's club more entertainment it was the most entertainment in the smallest amount of space <laughs> that i've ever seen they literally can, can we talk about sam for a second sure so what, what go were you ahead want? go ahead barry set him up set him up bear
0: this is awful <laughs> what do you have you have emphysema <laughs> What's going on? i don't even smoke God, he's in terrible shape i'm just looking at you guys and it's just uh, it's killing me you're overcome
3: all right. all right. All right. First, we'll go away. Then we'll talk about Sam's in a minute. We got so many things to talk about. Kevin, are you keeping track? Write all these things down. <laughs> Kevin Barry's assistant is here. This is a. Young man, so beautifully turned out. He's got a tie on. It's Saturday. It's hundred degrees in here, by the way, because the Saban Corporation, who owns this building, does not put on the heat. Uh, does not to put on the heat. They do not put on the air conditioning in Los Angeles in August in, on Saturday because they're chill. They have a Shabbos you who could come in and turn on the air conditioning, but he must be out doing something for their vast holding company. But Kevin is wearing a tie with a beautiful. I believe it's a double
0: Windsor. And is it? Yeah, it's double inch. It's awesome. Anyway. And Kevin is uh, now the producer of the podcast too, so he moved up from poor boy, guy. Like had you... to come,
3: he had to come and make small talk with me and Liz. It was poor guy. I felt I felt for him. Didn't you
0: feel for him, sweetie? Was he an easy
3: hang? He's gonna get it.
0: <laughs> He's great. He's from Naperville in
3: Illinois. He's freshly scrubbed. He's from Naperville. He's got a lot of degrees. He's gonna be great. He's gonna be great. He's gonna work at the William Morrison Agency, the best agency in the world along with Creative Artists and UTA and all the other agencies, they're all exactly the same. <laughs> Who gives a shit? <laughs> they're all exactly the same.
0: Um, well, I'm sure that your agent wanted you to work on the Jeff Foxworthy show. I'm sure that had nothing to do with the extra 3500 right, a week.
3: The po- yeah. Uh, no, it was, I'm sure it was both shows or packages, I think. Uh,
0: you never know. But this is what's fascinating before we go back, is that you did something that everybody should think about doing, is, you know, you can you can work for the money. Or you can work where you think you're going to make the most impact and have the best, you know, the best relationship with all the moving parts. And that's what you did. When you look at 3,500 extra show, everybody, think about this for a second. If the Foxworthy show just went like a year. Oh, it it was in its second
3: year of the show. It was going 22.
0: So it was going 22 episodes. So automatically he's going into that thing and he's going to make... At least he's going to make seventy thousand dollars more than the other right, job. Right, the script. Right, and the other job wasn't even a guarantee of twenty-two. You know, it, it was a guarantee of thirteen. Well, maybe
3: you know it comes on. They could cancel it in six weeks. I mean,
0: but yeah. Uh, so can't. So the Foxworthy thing, he was probably guaranteed to make over one hundred and fifty thousand more dollars right. or more. Yeah.
3: Could but be. you know what? I knew that Raymond was a, a was special and the funny part I think if <laughs> you talk about what the agent do, uh my agent who told me to take the 3500 more a week also represented Phil Rosenthal, the executive producer of Los Raymond. He was just ca- just cutting carpet. I don't know what he he was just filling orders. He was he was not thinking globally. Wow. he, he would deny that to this day, I think, but that's not true. I, I know the truth. Anyway.
0: All right. So we're go going ahead. way back to I'm your family up. Yeah. growing up wherever that was in Chapel, Chapel North Hill, Carolina. North Carolina. I was born uh, in Chapel Hill. And and so you're there, famous basketball college, yes. basketball area. And so what my was it like? My dad died going? when I was, my dad, like your dad,
3: almost exact same age. My dad died when I was about, uh, just about to turn four. And uh, I know from the podcast that your dad died when you were four, right? Yes. Yeah. So my mom and I. Um, moved. Um, so you just, you were an only child. Yeah, I was an only child. And my mom and I moved to Boston when I was seven and it broke my heart. I was, uh, I loved living in North Carolina. We had an acre of land and it bordered other people who had plenty of land and we were kids running around in the country and having a great time. So my mom and I were still there and her job at the time um was to um bring the underserved community, the local community, and these are basically sharecroppers, kids, um, this is like out in tobacco country, into the Head Start program. They Carolina had started a Head Start program. And so my um and I even remember like seeing um, you know, whites only signs. Um At country clubs, at no, at uh, at uh, the local grocery store, they they didn't matter anymore. I mean, those laws were not in effect anymore, but the signs were still there, in in like sort of like it's like I guess they'd forgotten to take them down. But I kind of remember this water this water fountain in a grocery store that was there. But anyway, my mom like. The town was integrated. It was Chapel Hill. It was a college town, but my mom was still like heavily into social. She was, of course, heavily into social justice, and she would like do things to me. I wasn't quite aware of she. I she used me to integrate a pool um, when I was like six. There were there were a couple different pools in town, but one was like really uh, like an African American pool. Like like there were no white people there. It was a nice pool actually. It was a town pool. It was really nice, but. It was pretty – there was de facto segregation, and my mother would say things – I remember, like, my mother saying, there's nothing wrong with this pool, and we're going to this pool. I'm like, okay, but my mother, being a little bit cheap, was like, you're going to this pool, huh? Well, we only have an hour or so. I'm not going to swim. You go. So – I remember my mom being like behind this fence and I like, you know, you're already a little, you're like six years old. You're weird. You have to go and like shower you know, like in this like bathhouse and they come out into the pool It's an outdoor pool. And, and I'm like, Oh, why am I doing this? Why do I have to be the tip of the spear? You know? And my mom's like, go swim. Everyone's very nice. I'm like, okay. And the one cool thing about the pool is it had a high dive. And so I was like, Oh you know, I don't usually get to go off a high dive. And the reason I didn't usually get to go off a high dive is because I was really a, a wimp. I, I, it's too high. So I did my normal high dive routine, which is go up a huge line of people that are all waiting to go. I get up there, go out to the end of the board, chicken out. Now there's this white dude on the only like on the marshmallow in the cup of hot chocolate. And I gotta get got, got like, excuse me, pardon me, pardon me, pardon me, excuse me, pardon me, all the way back down. And everybody's like, like, <laughs> Like there was no racial tension except for the the prejudice against the chicken kid. Uh, And that was me. But I'm like, Ma, can we not integrate? Like, can we not can I not be part of the social movement? Like, can we work these things out ahead of time? So that was what life was like for me in North Carolina. And I I really did like it. My mom was very, very progressive, but she was also sort of a Jewish mother. So like we'd go out to visit these these houses where these people lived, like in these shacks. My mom would be trying to talk to them about getting the kids into Head Start. And she would have me bring a toy, which is fine. And so I'd bring a toy, and my mom would say, "You play with the kids. I'll talk to the parents." Okay, fine. And then she would always say, "And, and be, like the conditions were not great. So a lot of these kids had like skin conditions, and like impetigo and ringworm." And my mom would say, "You play. Enjoy yourself. Don't touch their heads." <laughs> so there was always, always that fear. But uh, but it was it was really a, a great upbringing. I had lots of room to run around, and except for the corporal punishment, because every day at school. Um, the teacher in first grade read a paddle list and uh, the same names appeared. uh, If you look now, I'm sure those are the kids with ADD and ADHD. And there were three kids who got paddled every day. I was paddled once, I think just to sort of keep up appearances. Like they, they brought me in on like, like, it was like the equivalent of the broken taillight charge. Like you talk during the film strip, you're getting paddled. I got paddled one time, but Antonio Steele and Eileen Carter and this little girl Beverly had to come across the teacher's lap. And she like, would I think, I don't remember. I don't think she pulled down their pants. She pulled up, Beverly's dress. This is taking an awful turn. But anyway, she would. But I remember this one kid, Eiley who smelled like pee and wore his old church shoes to school every day. And these overalls. And he was such a little like a southern. He was such a little, you know, country bumpkin. And he would like had these overalls. And he would every day he would scream. Teacher, no. Teacher, no. And she would paddle. (laughs) So but college town. Good town. I'm serious. Good town. (laughs) So, anyway, so that was my life in North Carolina. Then we moved to
0: Boston. How did your dad pass away? Uh, he had Hodgkin's disease. And my I didn't really dad remember. had Hodgkin's disease. Did you remember your dad? Briefly. I have very, very fleeting memories the of my father. The things I remember, as odd as it sounds, I remember this one time I was hanging out at dinner and my dad was there and he drank a glass of wine and then he started having all these pains all over and he was like he you know I don't know what's wrong with me I'm I'm, and he was almost incapacitated and my mother called the ambulance and I remember seeing the stretcher coming in the the house and taking him out and I never understood what that was and later on I did some research on Hodgkin's disease and and wine has some kind of reaction to it that creates that pain whatever and then The things I remember most are just those times when he was sick and going in and out. But I remember one time he put me in his lap and let me drive the steering wheel when I remember that. Yeah. And I remember one thing about my mom that's kind of interesting that I think I might have shared once is that as a manager, I realized that I'm sort of like the everything's going to be okay guy. Yeah. And I realized where that came from because I remember when I was four or five after my dad passed away. And I remember getting up in the middle of the night and sort of walking around the kitchen and looking from the back of my mom washing the dishes, looking out in the backyard. And you know when you can see somebody crying from behind and the shoulders are shaking? And I remember going to my mom's leg and holding her leg and saying, Mom everything's going to be okay. And that's where I think it all started. You've told that
3: story on the podcast before. I know <laughs> I did. Yeah. Okay. And it, but, but it, but it struck me. I mean, this is, you know, and I remember those moments I remember being in North Carolina and I remember there was a, a uh, we had a drawer and there were knives in it. And, um, and I remember thinking, I remember the biggest knife in the drawer It had a wooden, uh, like a, a Brown, wouldn't handle. Um, And I remember thinking, that's the knife that I will use to kill the robber when the robber comes into the house, like, because I'm the man of the house now. And I remember feeling like, and I remember telling my mom that and her reassuring me that... um, that, that that was never going to be necessary and I shouldn't worry. But you know, you're, you know, you're a Jewish kid. So
0: you, you, you worry. I mean, actually, every kid does this, but, um, but yeah, I remember that. So that's where you lost your innocence right away. You know, we I mean, yeah, that's where the, I, I that's guess where your I hole know. was blown through. You.
3: I know you always talk about that. And by the way, my wife, Liz, um, maybe one of the things that, that drew us together was that her mom um, was killed, um, in a in a terrible accident um when she was only five, so we have this sort of weird connection of an early you know a loss of a parent early. This is a great funny podcast is not it what what's up with the cash card? When do we find out about getting our money back?
0: Yeah. do we'll figure out the winner again <laughs> no but yeah, so we so that's you know, so you moved to Boston, why did your mom move to Boston? We had
3: a couple of relatives, my mother um was, is a social worker and an educator, and she got a job um, at the Boston Juvenile Courts uh, as the head social worker in the juvenile courts in Boston, and- um and we had these, you know, I think my relatives are saying like, Paul, you cannot live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina in some some hick town. It wasn't. Chapel Hill is a great town. It's an amazing town. But she still felt she was a, um, a New Yorker and she, well, she'd actually grown up in Jacksonville, Florida, but had a ton of relatives in New York. And she felt like Boston was a vibrant place. And so we moved there. And my mom, we moved there in the summer of 68. My mom met my dad during um during the fall of 68, my, my, my step, the guy became my stepfather. And then eventually I changed my name to Schneider. He became my, my legally adoptive father. Wait, so she met him. She met him in September. I remember cause he came over. September, while they were dating. how uh,
0: long after your dad passed away? Oh, four years,
3: uh, four years. So she met him in September, um, right after we moved to Boston, um, they were married by December 16th. And so I lost my house but got a crappy apartment and a great father, um, like in the next, like in five months. And he didn't want to adopt you. Yeah, and he was an amazing guy. He was an amazing, amazing guy. I lose fathers like, you know, like trees lose leaves. He's gone too now. But um, he was fantastic. An amazing guy. Call him dad?
0: Yo, of course. He was my dad. Herb Schneider was my dad and um fate is such an amazing thing. We always talk about fate in in ways in business and how it is, but it's just incredible. Your mom, she loses the love of her life, your dad. Mm-hmm. But if that didn't happen, she never would have
3: met her. I mean, he was amazing. And he, he and he was a huge part of comedy for me. I mean, he he recognized that I love comedy. We bonded over comedy. He had comedy albums. I mean, this is that was the that he he pulled the trigger. That was absolutely the guy. It's incredible. And so and what did he do for a living? Social worker. Both my parents are social workers.
0: He taught at BU school of social work. You're growing up, he's a great dad. There's never a time where you're angry and say, "You're not my father." Uh, you know,
3: no, I can't really. I mean, there were times that I felt I remember sort of I went through periods where I was like I was really close to my mom and like a little bit less less close to him. But that was brief. And I mean, very brief because I really loved I had a really good relationship with both parents. I mean, they were, you know, stupid when I was, you know whatever, an adolescent, but I realized, you know, that Mark Twain quote is my favorite, which is, I couldn't believe what a fool my father was when I was 19. And by the time I was 29, I couldn't believe how much he'd learned in 10 years. (laughs) You know, so I mean, I really, I'm going through that with my own kids right now. And I, and I think, I think my kids know, and I told them the quote and I think they, they took it to heart. I think they know that I'm not, not the, not quite as terrible as, uh, as they might otherwise imagine. And so your mom married to her Mm -hmm. until he passed away? Yeah, he died, uh. Ninety-eight. Yeah, he had a stroke and I actually walked in. He was in Brigham and Women's in Boston and I came, I was working on Raymond at the time and I came, I flew, it was the, <laughs> I flew the night of my birthday. I arrived in his hospital room at like, you know, I t- took the red eye and I got in there and he really looked, looked like he was going to die. And I, I was like, I didn't want to be cruel, but I thought to myself, this should not continue. He just, you know, this is not going to get better. And he... And the doctors came in and said stuff like, well, his body will make the decision in the next you know, three or four hours. And he pulled through, but he never never spoke again, never walked again. He, w- he did not die until she was ready to let him go. That's what Liz has always said, and I believe that was correct. Was his mind still there? Or was it- he couldn't tell. He would get inside jokes. I would make inside jokes that only he and I would know, and he would nod at me and and laugh and make this face like, you know that I know that. Like, clearly. I mean, he clearly knew it wasn't random. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, he'd put the electric shaver in his mouth. I mean, you just, you know, neurological deficit is a really hard thing to to quantify. They You know, the mind is Swiss cheese um, after a stroke. And um, so, yeah, duh, yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah.
0: And so he has comedy albums. Tell us yeah, he had, three of the comedy uh, th- albums are the most ones. influential for you. Amazing
3: ones. Uh, he had the 2,000-year-old man
0: in- Mel Brooks a, and Carl Reiner. Right,
3: but in a collection that included uh, some Stan Freeberg, Andy Griffith, what it was was football, some Frank Fontaine, some- um, it was, you know, it was, I can't remember what it was called. Um, but it, I, I can remember it. it was, I think it was a Deca label. It was like a yellow label. Um, that he also had Jack, I'm the greatest comedian, Jackie Mason. I'm the greatest comedian in the world. Nobody knows it yet. Uh, he had, Bill Cosby, Wonderfulness was the first one he had. So yeah, those albums, those three, and then, you know, yeah, there were others. There were certainly others. Nichols and May.
0: What's the first thing that happened in your life that said, I'd like to be in this business? Was it listening to the albums or was it
3: something else? Yeah, I could, do, I could imitate. My dad would just say, do the 2,000-year-old man. I mean, you know, I would do it in car. I would do it, you know, we didn't have a phonograph in the car. For I mean, our
0: audience who hasn't heard it, why don't you do like a minute of the 2,000-year-old man for us? Oh,
3: my God. Is it true? You know, well, I, the, you know, the, the the conceit of the of the thing was that that Carl Reiner is an, is interviewing a man who's just landed at Idlewild Airport who claims to be two thousand years old, and and he said, "Hello, sir," and he comes on, he goes, "Oi." And then he proceeds to say things to him like, "Sir, you've known so many great historical figures. Can you tell us a little? Did you know Robin Hood? Robin Hood? Sure, sure. Lovely guy. Ran around the forest. He goes, uh, did, is. Did it's true that he stole from the rich and gave to the poor? No, 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 no. He stole from everybody and kept everything. <laughs> <laughs> it goes on and on. he goes. Well, I hate to see our legendary figures smashed. I hate to smash them for you. <laughs> <laughs> Did them all. He did. I used to do, used to do that for hours. I, I love that
0: album." And so did it make you want to perform? Um, it, it, it did, certainly. Um,
3: and then, like Bill the Grunfest, I went to camp. And because if you really love your child, people, you must send them away for eight to ten <laughs> weeks every summer. It was eight weeks. I went away eight weeks every summer. And I loved it. I went to this camp in Raymond, Maine. Raymond, And there's, you know, there's a stage at camp and they, you have to kill time at night. They have to put on a Mr. and Mrs. Ugly contest. That show needs a host. You have to put on the, uh, the camp trivia contest game. That show needs a host. And I started hosting and writing the questions and asking, you know, being the guy who did the impressions of all the, all, every counselor there. And, uh, so that was, uh, that became my thing. And so, you know, Try to keep me off that stage. Everybody got to be on stage as much as you wanted. Everybody got to be on stage. It was great.
0: And so that's when you knew you wanted to do something in the business.
3: Yeah. Like, I loved comedy, but it wasn't something you did, really. High school, I did some comedy. That was the first time I ever got on stage and did stand-up. Um, At a well, talent show? Yeah. Yeah. And, the well... Two things happened. One, I went on a ski trip uh, w- with the ski club and we're all in this bus and the older kids are making fun of each other and younger kids. And, so, and I walked in there. It's like being in prison, you know, like, are you going to, you know, they're going to make fun of you. What are you going to do? You know, are you gonna, you're supposed to punch the biggest bully in the face and uh, you know that, and you'll avoid trouble. And this guy started needling me or something and I just ripped him up. Like I was, I don't know. He was really a good sport about comedy wise, yeah. ripped him up. Yeah. He was a really good sport about it. And the upperclassmen thought, I was funny, I was tiny. I was four foot 10 in ninth grade. And I'm married to the six foot woman now. And now I'm, you know, but at least five feet. No, now I'm five eight, But, But it, I always felt small. And that was a way to be a little bigger. Uh, and my mouth was enormous.
0: It's so interesting. You talked about how that is. My oldest son is going into sixth grade. And there's certain things as a parent you. You really don't understand because you're doing it for the first time. Everybody's being a parent for the first time. And every year that your children are growing, there's experiences that are happening that you don't have any idea necessarily how to handle them. And my son says, Daddy, I'd like to get my hair cut for school and I'd like to get a pair of jeans. And I said to him, I just want to preface it by saying my younger son never wears pants only wears shorts, oh, shorts okay. never wears anything but shorts and tank tops and things like that my older son never wears shorts only wears long track pants and long sleeve shirts that's all he wears both of them will never wear a pair of jeans and they both have very long long hair longer than liz's hair So the older one's going to sixth grade, which is the middle school or the incarnation of high school. He said, I want to cut my hair, get some jeans. Gets his hair cut. He comes back. He's got half of his head as a military buzz cut, and the other half is long, like it was before, like Liz's hair. Picture Liz's hair just just buzzed on that side. And... (laughs) He has made the decision that this is how he's going into sixth grade. And so I said to him, this is awesome. I I actually love the haircut. How did you decide, do you want to do that? And he said, Daddy, I don't want to be ordinary. I don't want to be just like one of the people. I want people to know that I'm a weirdo, that I'm a little bit off, that I am different, that I'm unique. I said, okay, well, you know how many nice people there are in school, in fifth grade, and how many bullies there are? Well, you're going to multiply that by about five times. So what we're going to do is a little role play here. Go for it, Daddy. Okay, I'm going to throw an insult out at you, yeah, and you're going to come back, and you're going to get me with a comedy barb. <laughs> I'm like, nice haircut, pal. Uh, what did you just become an extra for the movie Friday the 13th. Oh, pretty good. And he just paused and he says, no, but I heard your mother was an extra for Friday the 13th <laughs> or something like that. What I'm saying is we did this role play <laughs> and we went back and forth and it was just a wonderful thing. And I think to myself of what you were talking about and and what you can go through in these grades and, and how everybody says that when you go into a situation that comedy is the way to go when times are tough, when when somebody's shitting on you or somebody's being mean to you. Comedy is always something that will always help. And the fact that you're an example of that is very exciting.
3: Well, there's a caveat here, though. I have to say, in that moment on that ski club bus, that guy was such a good guy. Kenny Burstein, I still remember his name. He laughed so hard at whatever I said to him and, and people were like, it got almost into a, do me now. What do you think of that guy? And I, it was like tiny Rickles. I mean, I was going, I went off, you know, there was a long ride. I was jabbering away for a long time. And I thought, and it was like, it was the juice. I was absolutely like steroids. Oh yeah, it was, it, no, I'm not kidding. it was like, you know, you get that taste where it's like, oh my God, these people are laughing. I didn't want to shut up, you know? And, and they were so kind to me. they, they, you know, it became that was the most fun I had in high school were those trips. And we were always uh, you know, so that was sort of a part where I was like, I'm funny. I think I'm funny. I think these people are laughing because I'm funny. I'm not just doing Cosby, I'm not just doing Mel Brooks, I like I'm doing my own shit. In high school, the the last day of English class in twelfth grade, my teacher, Margaret Metzger, who's a fantastic teacher who just passed away, she gave us each a piece of paper and an envelope and said, Write yourself a letter it's going to be mailed to you in five years. It'll be mailed to the, to your last note address. So for all of us, it was our high. It was the homes where we lived in high school. And I wrote, you know, it's the last day of high school. You're not doing anything in that class. So you're just sort of screwing around. So just on a lark, I guess I wrote, uh, hope you do well tonight. Uh, should be a good crowd. Yeah. Uh, the MGM grand is a good place to do comedy or something like that. I wrote like that. I was a Vegas comedian. I was going to be a comic. And so I see, I, you know, Kill him, break it like I had done comedy one time in high school, and it went great. But I didn't know why that translated into me doing well at the MGM Grand because there were, was really, if you projected out in the future, there was really no way for me to get big laughs doing an impression of a geometry teacher. But the point was, it was in my head somewhere, and so I sent myself that letter. And then five years later, I hadn't. I I was working as part of a comedy team. And, and I got this letter and I'd forgotten about it. And it was like, you're going to be a comedian. And now it was really in my head. So it was like, whoa, I guess I knew more than, you know, than I was aware of at the time. So that, I always thought that was cool that, you know, listen to the still small voice that, uh, you know, that says something early on. There's, there's a place for that. Uh, in co- in high school, I did, you know, the the classic talent show thing and it went great, but there was always, I, you know, here's the thing. You don't always think you can do it. Like comedy is something you think it's for other people. I mean, my, I think I had that feeling the whole time I was growing up. Like, like I probably was a better better athlete than I gave myself credit for. But I, I think, oh, no, those kids are great. I probably had a little low self-esteem. Like, those guys are really great. And comedians, well, like I saw the guys on television. They were so awesome. I'm like, I'm not like that. Mel Brooks, those guys are super funny. Like, I'm not that. I'm not I never had the feeling of like, oh, I'm as good as those guys. I did not have that feeling. And then, then I kept like, then I'd get in these situations where I would have a chance and I would like sort of hold my own. And I'd be like, maybe, maybe i keep trying, you know, like maybe you'd do it. And, and there was a kid at my high school, Robert Balkin, and they're like, he's good. He went up at the Comedy Connection. He's already a pro, he'd probably gone to an open mic night, and we were both on that show. And I, I in a competitive way, I guess I did a little better than he did. And he at came the
0: comedy connection in Boston no, at the y- Charles Playhouse. Yeah,
3: it, it, but yeah, he had done that. And so when he came back to do that talent show at school. I was like, "Oh my god, I I can't follow this guy." And then I did follow him, and I probably did better. And he came out to me after, and he was like, "You you should you should go to the connection. You should you should try to do this." So that was sort of like, "Well, like maybe I'm a comedian. I don't
0: know." And then I went to and you should always know everybody if there's somebody who's competing with you, and they take you aside and they say, you know, you should. Should go do that. That says something.
3: Who knows? I mean, neither of us were comedians at the time. But don't look at my
0: watch; it's a half hour fast. I think, as you should know, I don't worry about the time on these. Oh, podcasts I know, yet.
3: I know. You got fifty hours out of Gallagher. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay,
3: so um, okay, so I go to I, I'm taking forever. I'm sorry, everybody. So I right, so I go to I go to Penn, and um, my mother had said because she'd gone to Penn that I should join this club called the Mask and Wig Club. Maskingwood Club has been around, if you listen to the Mark Cronin episode of the Industry Standard, Mark Cronin was a member of this club with me. Uh, it's been around since 1894 or something. We have our own theater in downtown Philly. It used to be a huge moneymaker for the university. The club used to make so much money on their tours that they built dorms for the university. They uh, they had songs on the hit parade. They But uh, then when television came in, the club sort of, you know, like everything else, took a step back financially, but still has a thriving theater in the Philadelphia area, and it's still pumping out people like Paul Provenza and Mark Cronin and and other guys, David Naughton, the American Werewolf in London, was in that group. Um, anyway, my mom said I should join, and of course, because it was my mom telling me to do this, I said, no way, I'm not doing it, and just went to college and had a great time. And then finally, my junior year, I met a bunch of guys, who, or sophomore year, I met a bunch of guys who were super funny, and it turns out they were in that group, and when they said you should audition, and my wife also, who I who was my then girlfriend, had gone, that was it. Liz had gone to see the show. That's how I met those guys.
0: Wait, you guys met each other at the university? Of yeah. Do you mind just letting us know, like, how that came about, like, where you met? Come over here.
2: Okay, so I was visiting Penn. Actually, I was a senior in high school. It was February of 1980. Well, Penn was recruiting me for rowing. (laughs) I rowed in high school for two years. I hadn't even rowed my second season, frankly, but that was probably how I got into Penn. But anyway, I I went to visit my friend at Georgetown, had a great time. I went to Philly and I stayed with a rower and she lived On a crappy floor. She said, let's go hang out on this other floor. It's way more fun. It's a lot of fun freshmen. It was February of 1980. And I remember it really clearly, actually, because it was the uh, 1980 Winter Olympics. And all the kids on the whole floor were in one room, crowded around a tiny little black and white TV show TV uh, screen and it's really quiet except for one kid is cracking wise the whole time and he is hilarious he's making all the it's the pairs figure skating it's the Russian pairs figure skating so there's the gigantic guy and the little tiny woman can you believe I still remember this from 1980 and one kid's being hilarious and and it was this monkey he was jumping around like a monkey and he was so funny and then I went on my way and had a good time that weekend and I ended up coming back to Penn
0: wait time out you meet him in that room.
2: I just met him, but the great thing did is he when he come I
0: came... up to you and say hello, or did you? No, I just met
2: him. and I met all the kids, but I remembered him. He was.
3: She's too tall. I was way too intimidated.
2: I just thought he was like a nice guy, and then when I got back to Penn in the fall, I mean, in the fall, I started up, and I didn't know anybody. Nice guy. And I ran into him at the dining hall, and I was like, "Hey, I know you," and he's like, "Yeah, I know you," and so we were friends for a month. <laughs> We were best friends for a month. And then,
0: no, and then and, and then, then what happened?
2: And then I asked Did, him out. Then she asked
0: me out because I was too afraid. You asked him out. Yeah,
2: because we used to joke around about having an affair, and so at, at one day we were talking for like six hours, and because. Because you know,
3: when you're in college, you can talk for six hours. It's, can... like, it's like the Two Berry Cats podcast. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, it was a Sunday. I was all slumped out in my sweatpants and my hair in the pony. And we were, I don't know, we just talked and talked and talked all day. And at the end of it all, I said, so what about our affair? And he said, well... I don't want it to be
3: just an affair. No, I didn't say that. I okay. said, okay, let's start this. And then she went back. I walked into said, her to room. You said, let's start what? No, I said, okay. I said, that sounds great. Because I was, I still hadn't broken up with my summer girlfriend, I think. That's why I kept calling it an affair. Because we weren't so weird that we'd call it an affair. Did she know that you had a girlfriend? I think she knew that I had a... I,
2: well, did I, th- I know? Yeah. I knew, yeah.
3: Did, did you meet it, her?
2: I did finally meet her. They became
3: She's friends. Really She's nice. a really good friend of ours now. Dina. She's from Longmeadow. Greg Radner's sister Greg, wow. Greg Radner's sister you know Greg Radner he I was don't a kicker. remember he was a kicker at Long Meadow High holy shit Barry, you should I remember this. this Long anyway, Meadow High anyway my old high school anyway so Liz the next morning Liz said we should have this affair and then I'm so insecure that was like at midnight at 7 o'clock in the morning I'm knocking on her door I've been thinking about this <laughs> I don't want it to be an affair. I was afraid that someone had scooped in during the night and became her
0: official boyfriend. So we, he woke you up at seven. Yeah, probably. Who made the first move? I don't know. You?
2: I don't, know. I don't know. I think when I, when I said that, yeah, that was the move. Affair, said what about our then affair? that's the okay. I probably to make a move. I
3: probably kissed her then. I think I kissed her then.
2: All right, go back to your podcast.
0: Okay, go go over there. I just want you to know I've never done this before, where somebody came over and I, there's something about your personal life that is such a reflection of what everybody would want in life. It's the weirdest thing. I never know where these podcasts are going to go. But when you're meeting women in the world, if you're a guy and girls are meeting guys, obviously there's different goals and different things everybody wants. And you said something, Liz, earlier where you said you're 52 and... Am I going to look the same? Is it going to be going to look at me and think, oh, I'm not this anymore. I'm not that anymore. And I think that's one of the things that's so fascinating about being a woman that obviously being a guy I have no knowledge of is I think that Clint Eastwood can be 90 years old with his pants around his nipples and still be going out with 25-year-old girls. And I think for most women, there's this thing and you can correct me if I'm wrong, where you think to yourself, okay, how much longer am I going to be walking down the street and I know guys are going to turn around and notice me? And guys, they don't necessarily think about those things, even though they probably should, especially I probably should every day. But I think the thing is also about relationships, and we've heard this over and over again, 50, 60% of marriages don't work. And that old quote, you know, if you knew that 50% of all the planes you flew on crashed, would you fly? And the answer is you wouldn't fly. And then people.
3: 50% of our marriage doesn't work.
0: Well, I saw me, (laughs) I saw the video that you sent me and it works. And so that's the thing that's really fascinating about it. And then I think to myself, marriage is about this thing where you go in and you sign a contract that no business man in the world would ever sign you think sony is signing the contract with the japanese company and after 10 years it's like oh this isn't working out we'll just put everything it's like the weirdest thing but for you guys when i look at you it's like you are the poster child for what a successful loving relationship is i look at you guys and i really honestly feel And I'm not just saying this to you because a lot of you don't know what I'm feeling right now. But it's like there's this feeling like it's like 35 years ago. It's like that dorm room. It's like that conversation. It feels like nothing has changed. And when you're working in this business and putting as much work in as Lou is in this business, It's not easy to keep the train on the tracks. It takes a really, really amazing, extraordinary woman. And so I just wanted to mention that, that I'm sorry I'm going on all these sidetracks, but I think it's important.
3: Nope. You're, it's, uh, it's a great sidetrack. So keep going with your story. Oh, okay. So my nonsense. Um, so yeah, so my mom says, sign up, uh, sign up for this group. Liz has seen the group. So I go and I, I audition and I get in and, uh, you have to be able to sing and dance. I can sing a little. I can't really dance. I'm a kind of shitty dancer. Um, with some hard work, I can kind of mark time. But but I can write. And so uh, I'd done some stand-up uh, at Penn. I'd, I, you know, you, when you're young and you're a stand-up, you bite off more than you can chew. I, I see this sign for Spring Fling, which is a three-day rock and roll festival held in the daytime outdoors. Really perfect for comedy and uh, because you're going to entertain while they move band equipment around. And they enticed me to do it. Someone knew I was interested in being a comic, and they said, uh, Paul Provenza did this. Oh, Provenza's a god. He was a great comedian at Penn. He was a member of Mask and Wig, and they said, well, Provenza did it. I I should do it. So I wrote up what I believe to be about three days' worth of material. Um, You know, I figured I had six six tight hours. Um, (laughs) And... I went up there and just of course got annihilated. And uh, Liz, I don't think I ever introduced the second band. I think I introduced one band and then never introduced, I, did, I, I I never did any more comedy. I would come out and shout the band name and then run away. But I remember doing comedy and having Liz. I remember seeing Liz through that that face out in the crowd as I was laboring through the worst Shit, I've ever thought of, and heard with the smile like you're gonna do okay, like like it was like it was like watching Adrian at rock in Rocky one. Like <laughs> I mean, I was getting my ass kicked, and she was like, oh, no. she was gonna be okay, and she stood by me. She like never, she, I knew she was a champ. I'm like, oh my god, what she has gone through. I mean, it must have taken years off your life. <laughs> but anyway, so I did that, and then I got into mask and wig, and then I had a director in that show. I wrote a lot of the shows. And, um, the great thing about that was you did like 30 shows a year in that in that group because we had our own theater and you had to do a show every Thursday, Friday and Saturday night in the spring and it didn't matter if you had an exam or a paper the next day. You had to go and do the show and that's like a, that's the most professional experience I felt like you know I, I've heard of for a, a kid to do at age you know, 19, 20, 21. So I got out of there. My director uh, my senior year said you should go to Chicago and take classes at Second City and we toured out there. The the, the Mask and Wig Club goes around the country. Uh, not not every year, but we go to certain cities. And that year, we'd gone to Chicago, and I'd gone to see Second City, and I was blown away. Couldn't believe how funny those people were. And um, so I, I said, okay, that's I'm going to do that in the fall. So while all my, I, I, I toyed with the idea of going to law school, and I didn't even fill out the application, like the LSAT application. I remember I had it and it said, get a number two pencil. And I was like, fuck this, this too hard. And um, and I just. And I went to Chicago while all my friends became doctors and lawyers. Now you moved to Chicago, but mm-hmm. where's Liz? Are you? Liz is in Philly. Liz still has to finish a year. She's a year behind me, remember. So she has to finish. So every night I would work at the restaurant. I worked at a place, my cousin, who was an investor in a restaurant in Chicago, and he called in a favor and got me a job. Um, Liz moved out when she graduated and she took a job at a fancy schmancy private school making uh, Would you make fifteen thousand five hundred dollars for the year? She she was a hostess at the restaurant on the weekends, and then she became a wait a, a, a server, a waitron, and we worked together. I was a bartender probably by then. She worked a lot of lunches, but she started working at the Latin School. Why is that important? Connections, people, listen, relationships. It relates to the Goldbergs. She worked for a woman named Linda Henley, who is and Linda Henley had a daughter named Sarah Henley. Now Liz. Part of her job for fifteen thousand five hundred was to coordinate an after-school program, and she had to come up with like all the non-sports activities, and that included an improv class. And I've been taking improv class, and at the time, I had a comedy partner, and she said, "You and Bill are going to teach an improv class." Okay, so Bill and I taught an improv class to fourth graders. Bill, Bill Holmes of Schneider and Holmes. Bill Holmes lives in the valley now. Um, he does a lot of voiceover work. So Liz and I, uh, so Bill and I taught. Taught improv. One of our improv students, fourth grade, Sarah Henley. Sarah Henley married to Adam Goldberg. Adam Goldberg, executive producer of the Goldbergs. Never throw out a relationship, everybody. I don't really remember Sarah Henley from that. I mean, now I know her because she's Adam's wife. But so when we were out here and Adam Goldberg was trying to get into the writing game... Linda said, oh, you must call Liz and Lou. They're wonderful people who live in California. So I read Adam's Raymond Speck, and it was—he says that I wasn't very nice about it. I just said things that writers always say when you give them a—it's hard. When you give a writer—Barry, get ready to be instructive—when you give a writer a script for a show that they're working on, it's tough for that writer to read because we have very specific— standards and knowledge of the show that and we're so we're going to notice all the faults that uh, the regular uh that the general public
0: won't notice so he gives me a ram, and there's another thing yeah. that lou isn't describing first of all in my humble opinion never give a writer on a show a spec script of that show ever do you know why everybody because every script that a writer writes for a show, I don't know what it was back then, but now it might be twenty-five to $35,000 if you write an episode, okay? <laughs> yeah, it's twenty-four nine, I think. Okay, yeah. twenty-four, but th- let us just say $25,000. Mm-hmm. So let's say you're on a show, it's in the second season, there's 22 to 25 episodes they're doing on a network show. In the writer's room... There could be 12 to 15 writers, producers there who are possibly getting assignments to write one of the episodes, two of the episodes, co-write them, Mm -hmm. as well as help contribute to them. Why in the world... Is any writer you give a script to going to be like, hey, it's a great script here. I think you should do this. I think you should take $25,000 out of my pocket and give it to this guy who's never written anything before, no matter how great it is. You don't want to do that. You don't want to be in a situation. You want to help the person. So that way, if in, in my mind, if you are a writer and you want to give a script to somebody, find the executive producer who's overseeing and everything and he knows that he's going to write whatever he writes if he wants to write four episodes he's writing four episodes if he wants to write one episode that year he's writing one you give it to him even if your thing is great and he wants to use it he doesn't care because it's not affecting him because he can put in any episodes he wants to write but the person in the chain on the way up they're not going to be inclined to help you. Well, I won't even read them now because I won't I don't want anyone to think that I've
3: stolen an idea. So I if it's a, if it's an existing, you know, if someone's writing, I won't even read a Goldberg spec cuz suppose I mean, suppose you come up with some element of that show and I don't want that there to be bad blood. By the way, they're probably you know, we live in a finite universe, you know, and we're talking about on the Goldbergs, we're talking about the universe of the 80s. So let's say I have a um, you know, I have a, a um a Yahoo serious reference, you know, from nineteen eighty, or you know, some some kind of you know Gallagher or something. Well, so, someone gives me a script of the Gallagher reference, and that person goes, "Lou Schneider stole my Gallagher idea." Well, I didn't. I believe me. So I don't even read those because I don't ever want to put myself in that position. And like you say, there's so many reasons not to. But re- normally
0: there is a release form that they <coughs> give you the sign. That basically says that if they do an idea or there's something similar that they do, every once in a while someone hits someone hits the gold mine. Like
3: from like Tom Palmer. Supposedly Tom Palmer wrote a Cheers, great writer. This guy wrote on Cheers, and then he wanted to do. Uh, he'd written on Murphy Brown. He's done a ton of stuff. Supposedly he wrote a spec script where the Pope comes to Boston and he goes to pee at Cheers. Do you remember that one? And that was his spec, and he got the job on the show. I think, or no, he didn't get the job on the show. Excuse me, that's what got him as Murphy Brown. Uh, no, he did get a job, and he got the, that was an assignment. <clears throat> he got to write that for Cheers, and then he got a job on Murphy Brown. I think that's how it went down. So every once in a while, don't don't follow this advice, people. <laughs> every once in a while, someone gets the you know gets the golden the golden ticket. But yeah, and I'm not sure.
0: saying don't submit it. I'm just saying your best bet is to submit it to the top. Yeah and not the middle or the bottom. Right.
3: So anyway, there we go. Liz uh, is—I'm going back to the story. Liz uh, is working at the Latin School for Linda Henley, and Linda Henley's uh, son-in-law is is Adam Goldberg of the Goldbergs. Relationships, people. (laughs) All right.
0: So So. you're in Chicago. Now you find yourself— at Second City. Was that the Del Close years? or This was Players Workshop.
3: This is a racket they had where you could take the <laughs> Players Workshop, and then if then there was a separate thing. You could take classes at Second City, which I didn't realize till I got there were two sort of separate entities. Second City Players Workshop was different, but I was in a kid's show with Bob Odenkirk. Actually, yeah, we were in a show called Leaping Lizards at Cinderella. Bob Odenkirk from Mr. Show. Yep. And and, and now, Better Call Saul and call and, Breaking Saul. and Breaking Bad and he's and he's just unbelievable, and I uh, and who else was out there in that in that second city class? Ken Campbell, Ken cut Ken Hudson Campbell, who was the big guy in Armageddon and in Herman's Head, and Tom Giannis, who's a director who directed Drunk History, worked on Saturday Night Live. So we were all in second city. They weren't. In, uh, Bob was actually in a class. We were in the same kid show, but Bob was in a separate section of the same class, and then. Um, and then I started doing. St- in those days, I would go and improv, improvise on a Sunday night with Steven Leo, Steve Rudnick, and Leo Benvenuti. And Leo are the funniest, the funniest guys I've ever seen on stage. They were my rabbis in those days. Um, and uh, eventually, they brought me out as their opener. I, I was, I was worked with a co- another comic. We sort of ripped Stephen Leo off in Affect, and uh, they were kind enough not to yell at us. We were Schneider and Holmes. They were Stephen Leo. Bill, my partner, left to do an Equity show.
0: But you started doing stand-up simultaneously while you were working on the improv. Yeah, exactly. Now, in Chicago, not a lot of places to do stand-up.
3: Well, in those days, it was sort of getting... It was getting better. It was... Uh, there were a lot of bad comics in Chicago in those days, um, but there was a... There was a there were a few... There was a core group, including, like, like, Tom Dreesen had come out of there. Even Arsenio had come out of there. But it was like... There was the Comedy Cottage, the Comedy Womb, Who's on First, Zany's was the big club, still operating. Um, but the Funny Firm hadn't come in there yet, the Improv hadn't come in there yet, and the Funny Bone hadn't come in there yet. So those are—so it was all sort of weird—what was the other one? Byfields. Oh, yeah, there was a cabaret, a cool cabaret in the Ambassador East Hotel, and that's where I worked with Carol Liefer. Um, so so there was, there was some good—that was a classy room in town. But um, it was a hard— uh, you know, in 1985, they needed comedians as fast as, you know, as fast as they could put up brick walls. They had to put a comic in front of them. And so we, you know, as soon as, you know, on these open mic nights where we were going to do improv, they would throw you up as a stand-up if you wanted to go up. So I would do that. And Stephen um, Stephen Leo Brent eventually brought me out with them. And we would do a show. I would do my time. They would do their time. And then we would do an improv set together.
0: What was your first break as a stand-up on television?
3: My first piece of TV was a show called Night Shift in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which, which, uh, that gave me my, you had to have a piece of
0: tape. Now, Night Shift, for those of you who don't know, this was a guy, he basically, he set up this thing that, it could be argued, looked like a public access show, but he set it up like it was Letterman. Yeah. And... As a comic, you had great tape from yeah. that because you'd be performing in front of these French doors. I remember that. I can't believe you remember that. Oh I've, yeah. I can't believe you remember that. It's incredible tape. That was some of the most incredible tape that a lot of first-timers had.
3: Yeah, and that's why you went to Fort Wayne. I mean, you would you would take that week there um, because you would you would do the you would do that show on Thursday night and then you would do the rest of the week, which was, you know, whatever. It was terrible. And so um, that tape got you what? Well, actually, that that tape just got Bill and I on uh, recognized. No, I didn't get on TV as a stand up until I went to New York. And I you know, oh okay, well here's what happened. This is the you this is the part where you get into the story. Yay. <laughs> I would go because my family from yeah, Boston. I had a comedy Boston. club for
0: those of you who are in the Igloo the Boston Comedy Club on West 3rd and Grand I did Sports. that room
3: too. I did it when it, I did it for Eddie Brill before you got yeah. it. I did it when it was uh, the Paper Moon which is over the Sun Mountain Cafe. Yes. Um and I met Eddie Brill in Boston. And the reason I'd go to Boston, I uh, Stephen Leo Knew the Boston comics. They'd come in to do Boston, and they said, "You know, you live in Boston because Boston. They'd never fly anybody in, right? No. So okay, so Boston never flew anybody in. So you had to know people. You had to get get yourself there. But then the Boston comics, if they liked you, they'd put you up. You could stay in any number of filthy, filthy apartments. Um, and my my own house was filthy. I could stay at my parents' house. <laughs> so um, which was had its pluses and minuses, like. <laughs> when I when when I would go to Boston, this is like in nineteen eighties. Six eighty seven. I would go to Boston, and I'd be sleeping in my old bedroom, my old room, my old Karye Strumsky poster. I'm gonna be, and I was working at Catch one time. I remember uh, Bo- Catch a Rising Star had a club in Cambridge and and Harvard Square. And my mom's, not, you know, you're in your comedian's head. You stayed out late. Yes, you you, you you maybe you, you drove golf balls in the morning. You had a lunch. Now you're gonna lie down. You're gonna get ready for the night. My mom's knocking on the door at four o'clock in the afternoon, Louis. I know you're preparing for your performance. I'm like, it's not a performance. Stop saying it's a performance. I'm I'm working tonight. Okay, well, you're working on your performance. Please stop saying performance. The Sapers want to know... if you what time you think you'll be doing your performance stop saying performance mom <laughs> what time will you be on stage I, I don't know mom i'm the middle act and she would say well they want to come see you and ma like, they got to stay for the show if they're coming they have to come and they have to sit and they have to stay for the whole show well how do they know they're going to like those other comedians i don't know if they're going to know ma that's the <laughs> way it works and then she's I can't believe you're treating the Sapers this way. They have known you. I can't. Louis. You, you know, Rhoda and Bill are your guardians. If you, if something were to happen to your father, and I, mom, I'm 25 now. Well, in those days, it was very nice to know that they were there for you. So the Sapers went, <laughs> Bruce Donoff pulled your wisdom teeth. The least you can do is get them. Ma. they have to stay for the show. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. My mom saw me in Chicago at Who's On First. I remember we drove out there, and then on our way back, she said, must you perform in a speakeasy? Because who's on first in Chicago was long tables like in Oliver, the opening scene of Oliver, where they serve gruel to the kids. You know, like in Hogwarts, they put, you know, just long tables where people are facing each other, not facing the stage. So they'd sort of all cock their heads to look at the headmaster. The comic was like the headmaster. They just look up at you from the side. The early
0: comedy clubs, they didn't know what they were doing. And their whole thing was, how do we make as much money as possible? And the whole deal was putting these tables in a way that they can make as much money as possible, fit an extra 10 people in, and by doing so, the configuration was that everybody was turned to the side.
3: Could be bunk beds. Yes, you just have bunk beds. Guys just staring so at you, you like they're. So you'll see
0: on. newer comedy clubs. You'll see that when you go in there, every seat actually has faces a view the, of the stage.
3: stage. <laughs> yes, in those days it was not the case. So I go to Boston, and I remember someone said. Um I you know they got Stephen Leo got me in somewhere and I started working these one-nighters for uh Bill Downs and and Paul Barkley who owned the comedy um, connection Exactly and then someone said oh and then you'd go to k- afterwards the greatest thing about Boston was it was so vibrant after you did your set wherever they sent you Naughty Pine Plums wherever it was what the they'd sent you'd go to play it again Sam's you'd hang around and, and, that and that play was it, One it again Sam's the things Sam's. of the
0: club was, that I ran is that I realized that I was never going to have the best comedy club in Boston because I was in a basement, the stage was in the corner, and even though it was a great place to perform, we had some of the most amazing comedians that all the other clubs had. You know, I was in a cl- I was in a place where there was a movie bar upstairs. There was a little dining area upstairs. There was a guy playing in a More bar. More
3: entertainment per square inch than anywhere in the country. The guy he's talking about, who played
0: the guitar, Larry Tomei. He
3: was he had to ascend to his <laughs> perch. He performed essentially. He, did he sit on his own speaker?
0: He sat on his own speaker. You wouldn't even understand how it's possible for him to balance in the corner of this bar, the space where he was on, up high. I swear wow. to you people, it was the size of a large Ritz cracker. It, 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 absolutely. It, it, this,
3: I couldn't and believe a it. And the television uh, was uh, over exactly. his head. Exactly. I, I was going so to, the... if you want to know the space, if you want to know the space, like when you go to a bar and there's that TV that's hanging, that's been suspended by chains or a cable and it's in the corner, you know, that this poor bastard wedged his head under there and and uh, how tall he could have been he must have been like a jockey
0: how tall was he He was like your size so tiny (laughs) but the (laughs) thing was is that i i wanted to create an environment that was was, sorry to say an easy hang and so there was a
3: movie theater where you could drink
0: you could there was a movie theater there where movies that are on dvd or go to cable now would go there and you pay like a membership fee and there'd be couches and It was a really wonderful place. And then
3: between that and the bar, and there were, by the way, there were also some video games. If you needed to play some video games, they had absolutely everything.
0: And there was these waitresses named June and Marion who were probably 65, 75 years old. And they used to serve all the comedians. The comedians would come in and we'd have this hangout there and everybody would go there. And it felt good for me because I was running the comedy club. And I was just in college. I was just coming out of college. And, and all these other comedy clubs are so much more established. And you know that they wanted to have their hang because every comedy club wants to have their hang. But for them, it was the bane of their existence that all these people would leave their places and come to where we were. Even and, the people who ran those other comedy clubs in there. would come there. It was
3: amazing. And also, it was like it was like... It, it was like the distribution center. It's like you could meet there. Sometimes you meet at the Connection for certain gigs, but sometimes, and guys would come in, they'd be drinking at Sam's, and then they go out to do like a late night show, right? Like, And then also, now remember, you still had to go to the basement where how many people fit in Sam?
0: Well, when it was packed, I could get, believe, I don't know how I could get 200 in there, but but mainly sellout was 150.
3: Barry's office was a closet. That wasn't his official office. That was his office in the club. He literally, under the stairs, Barry cast a giant, like his you could like his feet would be just extending to the door and he'd be in there and 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 one of my early when I I this is why this is the reason I'm doing the podcast I wanted to tell this story when I got to Sam's one night and I'm I'm interested in your in, in your like memory of me at that age cuz I I don't really I was so impatient I was gunning for like I did not have I mean I did not have a sense that this could be a long-term thing. I was trying to get somewhere fast, I think, and I was probably not doing myself any favors. But I remember being on stage, and Barry was really good to me. And he said, okay, he booked me. He must have seen me somewhere, or someone had had given me— I think someone recommended me, and then I'd gone up, and Barry gave me, okay, yeah. So, all right, so you put me on. And then you gave me like a, it was a great, like a Saturday night set. And it was going to, I think it was probably my first time I worked Saturday for you. And you gave me two shows. Okay. So the and early show. And I gave show, you
0: the second spot. Uh,
3: killer. Beautiful. Because the reason why I, I,
0: I would do that is that if I didn't really have a clear understanding of, you know, I like to have a knowledge of what the person did and all you had back then were VHS tapes yeah, some, and you couldn't go see anybody because you were working your own thing. So uh, there were a lot of recommendations. Again, back then, people were recommending you. And when a comedian recommends you... He's taking a risk of taking away stage time from himself, and so when I put Lou on on a Saturday night, chances are the guy who recommended him didn't work that Saturday night.
3: Yeah, I mean, and I think it was Tony V.
0: Probably yeah. had had really been good to me. Great comedian, great actor. Great, so great. So what I did, what I do in those situations, if there's four comics on, I would always give that person the second slot because first comic goes on. He's like barbed wire in a way he sets them all up. And sometimes he doesn't do as well just to get the crowd where they're supposed to be. And that second spot is just a prime oh, killer spot. It was,
3: it, was a, it was a bed of roses. So I go up and I've never, I, I, it was like one of the best sets I'd had to that point. I come off and I'm feeling pretty good. I think Liz is there. I, you know, And 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 a guy from my high school, it's it's very close to my high school. I went to Brookline High. This is in Alston. Jimmy Kaplan comes up. I hadn't seen him in a, in a few years. He comes up and he says, "What are you doing, Letterman? Man, that was awesome!" You know, I was like, "Well, you know, you know, this will happen when it happens, whatever." And uh, oh, congratulations! He slapped me on the back. Great, great, great. Next show, I'm Barry comes up and goes, "Okay, listen, um, you're supposed to go third. I think I was supposed to go third on this." He goes, "Lenny, Lenny Clark was going to close." He goes, "Okay, here's the thing. Lenny has to. Lenny's doubling up. He's got to get to Knicks." you're gonna go after Lenny Lenny's gonna go third
0: just to set this up (laughs) Lenny Clark was the probably the most iconic comedian in Boston he always killed he was he was a guy who just amazing guy in terms of comedy and a great actor he was on Larroquette rescue me but could talk for half an hour about a doorknob and make it funny always killed never failed and on a saturday in boston i paid him a thousand dollars for three shows when people were making 25 dollars a set so i was upset that i had them go on before you but you know what are you going to do so lenny clark goes on and i remember him saying
3: look at all you look at all the women we got here oh my god what what do you women want to be called and he starts He says a bunch of terribly sexist labels and, and, but they are loving it, man. He's just, I don't know. He's on some jag. He's just fucking killing, killing, killing. And I'm like, I'm looking through my notes. (laughs) Uh, hmm, Let's see. uh, hmm, My Fermi stuff isn't going to go so well. This is a funny things happen with the answer machine. Not so good. Uh, hmm, How about uh, (laughs) airline travel is odd? You know, what am I going to do? I'm getting killed. I go up. And it I just don't and I just don't have the presence. I just can't can't follow him. The guy just killed me. He's awesome. I'm terrible. I come off and I'm, you know, just awful. Another friend from high school <laughs> happens to be at that show. He comes up to me and Tim Mamus. Tim Mamus comes up and goes, So what are you doing now? <laughs> I was like, I was a comedian. I was a comedian, comedian, up until 15 minutes ago. That's what comedy's all about. Man. Oh my god! And I love having gone through that. You know, at the time it's terrible. I love having, and I love being here to see your face.
1: <laughs> it was so awesome.
0: So tell our audience what your first big break was.
3: <laughs> well, one of my first big breaks in Boston was, now, why did you do this? Paula Poundstone used to come into town, and she was fantastic. I used to headline her. Yes, and you would headline her. And maybe once, but maybe, certainly once, maybe twice, if I was in town, you'd have me go before her.
0: Absolutely.
3: Which is a beautiful
0: you spot. And, you and Jonathan Katz.
3: Yeah. A beautiful spot for me, and I and Jonathan. I love working with John. We're very good friends. This day, I, I, did, created, I did a couple uh, of Doctor Cats with Katz. him. I love doing Doctor Katz. Like maybe the most fun you can have in front of a microphone, except for the Barry Cats podcast. Um, but I remember opening for for her, and I kept thinking, why would he do that? He's got a million people who want that gig. Like, like
0: was that just because, like, because I never really headlined anybody there except for Paula. It was all showcase. Gloves. So why me? I put you there because you were clean, and you were a really wonderfully nice guy, and I wanted Paula surrounded by the nicest, kindest, gentlest people. But you had guys. I mean, you had guys. But they weren't the vibe that you had. Man. I think it was one
3: of those things like where a guy has two brothers who can be his best man, and he just picks another friend so that the other kids don't fight. I think it was maybe because the Boston guys would have been pissed
0: at you. So... Tell us how you got your first break as an actor and okay. how did it all come about? I mean, we know you were doing well as a comedian, but what happened that got you in a situation where you were actually starring in a television uh, okay.
3: show? <clears> okay. <throat> a couple, uh, I went to New York, I got in at, uh, Colin Quinn, uh, had said, you should ensconce yourself at Catch a Rising Star. Um, I guess I'd come in and gotten some, you know, again, recommendations. People said, people said, get, um you know, get on a catch. That was the spot. I mean, you know, there were improv guys. There were catch guys. I decided I was living on the Upper West Side. It was an easy trip across town. So I I got in a catch and um, sorry, got in a catch.
0: And um, Louis Ferranda was pretty nice to me. And Louis Ferranda was the booking person at Catch a Rising Star. Now he is the iconic uh, like talent Caroline's director guy. at Caroline's Comedy Club in Times Square.
3: Yeah. And, um, and one of... Yeah, he was very, very kind to me and he he said I should put in four spots and I did and he said I think I'm gonna use you as an MC. And so I started MCing a lot at catch. And then um and then uh Jeff Garland had gotten in at the strip. And I knew Jeff Garland from Chicago. I mean, Jeff and I had been really um we had been friendly in Chicago. In those days there was uh Garland is has incredible ADD, and he uh, would use he would torture Liz by calling me at night, pretending to be different club owners when we were in Chicago, and he'd say, you know, like this is uh, Earl from Houston. I'm to offer Lou uh, eighteen hundred dollars for Saturday night, and Liz, of course, is a teacher, she has to get up at you know six in the morning. Jeff, the phone is not a toy, and she'd hang up on him. <laughs> He's like, does Liz still hate me? Like, no, she loves you, but you got to stop playing with the phone. But so Garland and. Garland and I did a shitload of road gigs in in Chicago together. But anyway, so we moved to New York at about the same time. Listen, people, relationship. (laughs) So Garland and I, um, Garland is my only friend, by the way, who routinely uses the word star as a verb in referring to himself. I'm starring in this. I'm like Jesus Christ, Jeff. To, yeah, that's a lot of self-esteem. Like he, he never doubted himself. He is really. You now we can get back to that later. But he's unbelievable. And Garland uh, had recommended me to Lucian. He'd gotten
0: in at, at the comic strip. Lucian Hold, the late Lucian Hold, was the talent director at the comic strip. And in so New Lucian. Uh, a wonderful man.
3: Yeah, he was great, and Lucian put me up a lot, and I lived in Carrie Hoffman's neighborhood. Carrie Hoffman was Carrie the, Hoffman was the
0: owner and uh, with his wife of Stand Up New York, Suki, and uh, so I worked Suzanne. there a time.
3: Yes, he called her Suki. Suki yeah, and so and then and then early on in my time in New York, I was sitting at the Improv. I think I was coming back from a road
0: gig. The Improv at Forty Fourth and Ninth, which was run by Silver
3: Friedman, mm-hmm. Bud Friedman's ex-wife. I passed there, but I hadn't really. I never spent any real time there. But Mike Rowe sitting at the bar, comedian, great writer, great comic. Mike
0: Rowe uh, wrote on uh, Futurama, Futurama for many, many years, and now uh, is the executive producer of Brickleberry, I yep. believe.
3: Yep, that's right. And Mike uh, got a phone call on a payphone. Bill Grunfest needs a guy to do a set. Uh, At the comedy cellar. And he said, uh, and I don't know if Mike, Mike said, I think Mike said, are you a comic? And I said, yeah. And he said, Grunfest needs somebody at the cellar. I'm like, okay. So I just went down there and Grunfest, I guess I did all right. And Grunfest had gone to Penn. We got into a conversation. He didn't know that at the time. He put me up and then Grunfest started using me a lot. So I sort of, when I got to New York, I got very lucky and I moved in 88 and by 89, I was working a lot. And, um, you know, New York is so great. You could do, you know, there were, we used to have these contests. How many sets can you do in a night? You know, nine guys would do like, I think France Alameda did 11 sets one night. You know, I mean, I, I think my record was nine. And uh, I worked at Caroline's for Joe Falzarano, And so, so anyway, uh, somewhere in there, I got, uh, they must've come to a showcase at catch the people from Nickelodeon. They were doing a game show called make the grade. And uh, this great guy, Bob Mittenthal, who's a great writer, uh, was the producer of this terribly incomprehensible game show. And it makes no sense. And it was like a kid's version of jeopardy. um, And I got that. And from that, I then had some, Tape as you know, some sort of you know. Here's a guy with a you know, with good hair, and um, and so then uh, I auditioned for this. Uh, my manager at the time was Lori Leonard, who later became Lori David, who's Larry David's wife, and she put me up for some uh, audition for the show called Wish You Were Here, which uh, they were shooting. is about a guy who loses his house, his apartment, his girlfriend, and his job all in the same day, and goes to Europe with a video camera. It was the first of its kind, the show where a guy would sort of turn a camera on himself and send, and the the conceit of the show is that you sent, the guy in Europe would send the the videos back to people in the States and the people would open the videos and what what he was watching was what the audience, what the people in the States were watching, that became the show every week. And I was the guy who got to go to Europe. So I got to go to Europe. That was my first, that was a giant, giant break. Um, You know, getting that, that was a summer series. I had read for um, Northern Exposure the same week and I got this show and they both came out at
0: the same time. You ever booked They and you ever auditioned for a scripted shows? Yeah,
3: it's, um very few.
0: Maybe no, that was maybe I feel like that was like. So you like book one of your first scripted yeah. auditions ever?
3: No, I, you know it's funny. I, I booked. I. I don't. Oh no, sorry. I'd done it. I. I had a sad card. I'd done a couple things in Chicago. I did a show called Jack and Mike, which is a. They were shooting a one hour with uh, Tom Mason and Shelley Hack, and I played a kid who did improv comedy. I'd auditioned a little. I'd auditioned for Broadway uh, for Bloxy Blues on Broadway, and but coming out of Chicago, it's the. It was really backwater. Like you did not audition enough for big things. You were totally cowed when you went to a real audition for a real television show or a movie like back to the future i think i auditioned for that you were out of your element you didn't even the casting director didn't know like when i went to new york to audition for for biloxi blues uh, i had to fly myself in first of all if you're flying yourself into new york you're not getting the part if you're a 20 year old kid in chicago like a 22 year old they, they
0: so what was the moment they, they that- said
3: slate they said, oh, they said oh they said oh they said um they said uh pick up the sides. I said. What I didn't know what sides were sides are the pieces of the script that you're going to read on your audition. I didn't even know what that was. So I was over my head. So when I got to New York, I at least knew what sides were. I knew how to slate myself, which is to say this is Lou Schneider and the William Morris agency sent me. Um, But I guess, yeah, uh, I guess Lori had talked me up to these producers. It was Marlo Thomas, um, Kathy Hart, uh, Kathy Berlin and Carol Hart. uh, And these three guys from William Morris, um, uh, well, One guy from William Morrison is two, these two writers he represented and they had written this script and, um, and I went in and I auditioned and I can tell, you know, the one thing I've always been able to tell is I know when I don't get the job, which is 90% of the time, but the times that I, and I always hate having to tell the agent when they said, how'd it go? And I want to say, I didn't get it. Like, I know I didn't get it. Like, I just can tell. Well, this is the first time I ever went to an audition. I went, uh, they, I, I'm going to get this thing. I'm. Uh, they're going to call me back. And they did call me back. And I and I then went and read for the director. And then they went to, but I was a nobody. And they went to look for, you know, more well-known people. And then I guess they were going to cast this guy who's a friend of mine in Chicago named Dave Pasquese, but he cut his hair. And uh, they didn't like his look at that point. And so they came back to New York and, and, uh, this is all supposed to happen. Like from the first audition to where we are now, this is, the guy is supposed to leave on an aircraft for Hungary, um, on, you know, like on Wednesday. And they call me on Saturday night. I was at a wedding in on the Cape and they said, come back. You have to read at Marlo Thomas's apartment on Sunday morning. So I drive all night and I get back and I do a shitty audition but they must have seen something. And Marsha Shulman, who is a casting director, said, come in and work with me on Monday. Uh, and I came in. I worked with her. And I felt like, well, then you're going to get it. If they're going to work with a casting director, they're giving you the answers to the test.
0: So I. And Marsha's an amazing. She was
3: amazing. She's fantastic. So So she gave me the answers. So I went in. Uh, Jeff Sagansky, who ran CBS at the time, flew in. They auditioned three of us on Tuesday. Uh, I had every one of the actors who was auditioning in this network test had to go and get a Hungarian visa because you're going to get on the plane the next day and you're going to have to have a physical the next morning. So they so we go. We all get our Hungarian visas. We're sitting there and they bring you in to read. And I I guess I did all right. And then, did any
0: of the people of the two people become stars in television uh, and film?
3: Not really. Okay. Uh, Danny Cote. Uh, his brother I I see I feel like I see him around
0: once in a while and the other guy was a Canadian and you go one two or three I think I went one and why don't you take our audience through what a test for a network show is all about
3: first of all, before you can sign, before you can go into test, you have to sign your contract, a five-year contract. If this show goes, you are contracted for five years because they don't want you to get it and, and have them go, oh, we love you. And they said, well, I haven't signed my contract. Guess what? You love me? You, you talked about $5,000. It's $20,000. You know, no, you're now, not it, supposed
0: to... now it's six, six and a half. And if you happen to test for SNL, it's yeah. eight years. Oh my
3: God. So there I was. I didn't have an agent. Lori had gotten me this guy at William Morris to do my contract. They offered me $5,000 for the, for the pilot. And my agent of 30 seconds said, you can't take this. This is the worst contract I've ever seen. It's terrible. Don't do it. And I went back to making salad and Liz called me from school and said, did you how the audition go? I said, I'm not going, I'm not going. They, they, the money was too bad. And she said, Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And then I thought better of it. And I called the agent back and I said, uh, I'll take the five thousand uh, uh, dollars. Uh, I'll take the five thousand for the pilot. So, um, so we. Now,
0: just so you know, five thousand dollars. There's children who make more money on yeah. shows than but that. I mean, I've never heard of a lead. Yeah. Getting five yeah, thousand dollars for anything. Th- I mean, the st- craft service person who serves the people the diced apples and the veggie plates and the cut pineapples. Makes more than that. No doubt. No doubt. But I said, you know what? I earned
3: $20 last night at the strip. I think I'm going to take the $5,000.
0: And patterns continued later on, (laughs) as we found out from the Everybody Loves Raymond, Jeff Foxworthy story. Exactly. So So you test. Go on. So I test. test.
3: I think I go first. I come out um, and they said, I think I go first. I don't remember. What I do remember is I was sort of gathering my stuff in the... uh, In the waiting area. Can I guess? Sure. And they said, Lou, could you stick around a little bit? I think that is exactly what they said. And then so they let the other two guys go, and I gave them my best so long suckers look, Um, (laughs) which is not very nice. Um, And I, Marsha came out, and she said, I thought I was, I don't think you even had to read again. I think I just, they brought me back in the room, they asked me a couple questions, and she said, go home right now, take a cab. Do not take the subway. You're going to meet the costumer at your house in two hours. Um, And of course I took the subway because I'm the cheapest guy in the world. But I loved, that was my favorite subway ride ever because I loved thinking I'm the only guy in this subway car who's going to be on television and flying to Hungary first class tomorrow. This is going to be awesome. And it was exactly that. Some guy showed up. All the luggage I carried was my wardrobe in the show. Um, I went, I went, uh, he, you know, he went, he measured me, came back, put on all these clothes, put it into a suitcase that they brought for me. The next day I went to a doctor at 11 o'clock in the morning by two o'clock, I was at Kennedy airport, uh, in the first class lounge. I'd never flown first class on anything. And, uh, and then I flew to Hungary and I made that pilot and it was pretty good. I thought, and Peter
0: Tolan, was the writer who came over to write on that show. And Peter Tolan, you, most of you might know recently as the co-creator with Dennis Leary of Rescue Me. Right. He has done so many things in his career. You can't even count.
3: He's unbelievable. And I see him on the Sony a lot now. It's so fun because he has a deal at Sony, and I now love running into, that's the beauty of being in this business for long enough. You run into people, and it's so fun to see him. It's the greatest. And so then after that, that show died uh, sadly, after six episodes, it was on in the summer. But my buddy, Alan Kirschenbaum, who had been the late Alan Kirschenbaum, had been in a play with Liz in college. And Alan, because I already had one network credit, was able to sell me as a possible um, lead in his uh, sitcom on Fox, Down the Shore. Which we just did a live presentation of. We didn't even do a, a real pilot, but but it was kind of cool. Barry Diller had to make a decision based on a play
0: essentially we we acted out a play Barry Diller, one of the most powerful guys in unbelievable the business
3: and luckily, I didn't really I wasn't cowed because I didn't really know that. And so we just did our thing. Anna Gunn was in that pilot, Pamela Adlon, who's got a great series coming out for Louie and, you know, has been so great on the Louie show and she's still a dear friend. So she was on that show with us and uh, Tom McGowan, an amazing actor who was nominated for Tony for Labette at that time. He really carried that show and um, Louis Mandelore. It was great. And we had a, we had a ball. We were young people playing young people. You know, I was, I was was having some success. I remember I was, you know, I'd, I'd gotten this HBO half hour and I'd gotten a couple of sitcoms and and I remember my dad, I, you know, I kept thinking, you know, this is going great. And and my father, whose hero is Buck Henry, is saying, I still think you're going to be a writer. And I was so insulted. I was like, oh, man, you don't know. You don't know me. I'm a great, mediocre comic actor. What do you see how I fool him? And uh, he was right. I, I shouldn't have taken it as such an insult. Uh, you know, if my—I actually just wrote a script for the Goldbergs with, with my son, Marty, who's not— um, it wasn't my idea. It was, uh, it was the showrunner's idea. He's known him since he was nine, and they're birds. They're very much kindred spirits. And he said, "You and Marty should write one together." And didn't happen the first year. It didn't happen the second year. And this year, he, re- I said, "You better check with everybody." And I thought he'd sort of forgotten about it. And this year, he said, "No, you write one with him." And so this year we wrote one together, and it was great. And I don't think Marty takes it as an insult to be a writer. I he wants to be a writer. I think he's enjoying it. We had a great time together. So, you know, he's going to have to do the rest of this by myself because. I don't want the nerves of writing with my kid again that was terrible it's like th- this doesn't just suck cuz it's mine this sucks in the name of the family i can't have that <laughs> that can't be our legacy so so you know hopefully it works out for him but uh,
0: so uh, just tell our audience how you go from being an actor and making great money as an actor eventually mm-hmm. and being the leads of shows or the co-leads of shows. And all of a sudden you say to yourself, fuck it. Well, you I'm just someone, be a else, someone else says fuck it for you. Who says fuck it
3: for you? <laughs> the people who are casting shows. <laughs> In other words, you talked about the 11 months you're out of work. I had a wife and a young baby, and we moved out to California. And my my, my son has such good timing that he was born between the first three sh- shooting, uh, th- first three episodes of Down the Shore, and the second four when we were first doing. We did the first order was seven for some reason, and he was born during hiatus week. And then uh, and then we went back to New York, and they picked up the show for more. And we ended up doing 29. And one of the writers in that show was Phil Rosenthal. Then with a partner Oliver Goldstick the relationships people. Uh, I had just done another pilot. I got a pilot written by S- Sam Cass, uh, Lori Leonard produced. Um, that was one of those crazy weird stories where I had a great audition and I th- told my agent, I got it. And then I didn't hear anything. And then all of a sudden they were like, come in and read, uh, come back today. Can you go to network? I'm like, well, what happened was they were gonna, they obviously started rehearsing with someone else and they were going to fire that guy. And that poor guy, when I went to studio on that show, he was actually walking to lunch. They actually pushed me back in the door so that he could go to lunch and then I could go behind his back literally and go into studio. You remember who that guy was? Yeah. I I never met him, but his name was an actor named Kenny Garrido. I don't know if he ever did anything else. Um, but I remember feeling terrible that this poor guy is, he's literally on the dead man walking. And if I do well at this audition, I'm going to do the afternoon for him. He's not going to rehearse in the afternoon. So that was tough. I mean, that is as bad as this business gets. Um, So I did that pilot, and that that
0: pilot was called— One thing that our audience should know is the star of Everybody Loves Raymond had a very similar uh, situation on news radio where he did the table read. And then they brought Joe Rogan in yep. the back door, yep. and uh, Ray was gone, and Joe ah. Rogan had the gig. And I've been on the other side as a
3: producer where the, they huddle, and then they come up to you and say, don't be afraid to make a move casting-wise. Don't uh, We're not sure about so-and-so, so uh, do you have other names that you like? And you feel terrible because you've just been rehearsing with this person and working with this person, getting them ready to go, and all of a sudden they're going to be gone. I remember sitting on my kitchen floor, you know, I, you know, my wife and I, my wife had just had our second kid and I was out of work for like 13 months. This is when I was transitioning from an actor to a writer. People said, Oh, how did you transition? I transitioned easily. No one was, my pilot didn't go and I needed to feed people and I could maybe make money as a writer. And I remember just just pounding the kitchen floor saying, I just want to work. And like, it's not up to you. It's up to somebody. Somebody has to smile upon you and say, come back to work, you know, and that's, that's the hard part of this business. That's the, but you know, it's the only thing I can do. Um, I'd already started writing, um, because in between things, you write. You can't, you know, as an actor, you just you have to depend on other people when you're an actor. They have to ask you to act, but you can always write. And Peter Tolan, with whom I'd had a relationship on Wish You Were Here, we'd been talking and we, we came up with this show based on Car Talk, which sadly became the George Wendt show. Taking nothing away from George, but he doesn't have those rhythms that the Car Talk guys have. But it got me a writing credit. So the people I was working with in New York, you know, there was Stilson and Stewart and... Um, Atel was a little behind me and Todd Barry and, and Royce, Mike Royce. Um, but it was like Ray, Ray Romano. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think, you know, I always think I'd be a better, I'd be better on stage now. Cause I, cause I know more now and I've lived through more now. And, and even then I was, I, I think I did pretty well. Like I was always amazed at John Stewart cause he could talk about the world and I don't, I, the world is so troubling. Like it's not funny enough to me. But my tiny little like life was. I could find the funny in just my relationship with my wife, and and my you know and my things, and I could do that. So that kind of became what I was good at. And then when Ray got. Everybody loves Raymond. And Phil Rosenthal said, "Do you know Ray Romano? I said, "Yeah, I love him." You know, and, and I thought that was when he got good. You know, he did that set on Letterman that blew everybody away, where he talked about having kids and like, yeah, if, if you have twins, you gotta. It's a good thing they're. Cute because if they're ugly, it's bad. Because you see one go by, and I thought he was ugly, and but now, boy, I wasn't sure until I saw it again. You know, so he like I was. Oh, I was so interested in his perspective, and I was able to like sort of get that. And, and it was all that family stuff. And when Phil said. Yeah. Do you want to, you know, can you work on this? I'm like, yeah, I really can. Cause I, it was all like, I was clicking into that cause that's where I was in my life. And so then when, uh, Phil called me, um, he had everybody loves Raymond, uh, going, uh, it was, it was in development. I guess, I guess I'm telescoping time a little bit. I think I was off for a few months, but then in the next pilot season, here comes everybody loves Raymond. And Phil said, uh, you know, can you help on this thing? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I came in and I worked on the pilot. And I, and I never looked back and, and two years into that show in the first year and one of the other writers who had worked on a lot of shows said, this is going to be great for you. You do two years, you sign a big deal, you go and you jump off this thing and you, and it's going to be great. You'll, you you know, you can work on other shows and then, sure. And that's what I was going to do. And then at the end of the second year, I was like, wait a minute. It's the best show in the world. What am I doing? I stay right where I am. You know, you, you this is the tour de France and I'm right behind the leader. I'm, you know, this is fantastic. I stay right there and draft, you <laughs> know, you know, right and right and right. And so that's, uh, that's how that went down. And
0: you know, the rest is history. Yeah. It took less money. Yeah, you take less money and low credit. It all worked out. Yeah.
3: I guess you're on the, What I wasn't aware of is like how much you're on the clock when you have a development deal. They're sort of waiting for you when you come off a big show to come up with the next big show. And I didn't do that. Um, and uh, lots of guys don't do it. Most people don't do it. Um, most of the people who have the big show don't do it. So I don't know why they expected those lieutenants to also do it. But anyway, so I worked on a few shows and and they were fine. It was great. Um, but then I worked on two years of a drama, well, a dramedy men of a certain age was kind of a, a light, I mean, it was sort of a realistic, it was as funny as real life is. So, which for those characters is pretty funny, but, um, but now I come back and I work on a couple of pilots the next year and they go, a lot of them go, but there's not really an offer for me because my old quote, you know, Hollywood works on quotes, your old money, your old price. My old price in the common world was pretty high, and um, now they're saying, "Well, wait a minute, Lou Schneider cost this much money, but we, all these studios, as the business shrunk after the strike, the studios had deals with fewer guys, but those and women, those people needed." To be put onto shows to make their deals worth it. In other words, the studio's spending money on you there, but they've got a show to put you on. They're going to put you on. They're not going to hire me from outside. I don't have a studio deal because I'd been on this drama, men of a certain age, which is kind of a drama, and it was really sort of an independent kind of deal. It was the TV equivalent of an independent movie. And now I've been on that, so that takes me out of the comedy business, but it leaves my price high. So now all of a sudden, it's like, well, yeah, we'd like to hire you, but you're too expensive. My agent doesn't care. My agent goes, oh, too expensive. But I I got, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Here at the blankety blank agency. I'm not going to tell you what it is. We have plenty of writers, that much lower cost, much, uh, their backs don't hurt and they still sleep through the night without peeing. They're great. You'll love them. So, uh, so they give them a young guy. So, um, so that's what happens. So then, so how do I get back in? So I feel like, Oh, wait a minute. If I want to work in comedy, I'm going to have to change the game. I'm either going to have to, so I sold a couple of pilots, which is fine. And that's, so you know, it's not like I'm starving, but If I want to work on staff, something's going to have to change. So I have this difficult discussion with my agent. It's difficult for me. I don't know if it's difficult for him. I'm like, drop my price. Forget about my quote. So... Basically, he makes me like a ball player's deal. Like, you know, it's when a guy's coming off an injury on his old contract. It's like, uh, so I worked for absolute, like the lowest amount of money you can work at, work as, as a producer. And I work, I'm supposedly only working three days, but they're like, no, you got to come in every day for that crappy money. And I was coming in, you want to see someone work hard? I was killing myself because I'm like because I knew my next year was much more money after. So the first year I'm killing myself because I know if we can get this show into the second year, I start making my money again. And then I didn't give him a third year. This is where my agent did some slick agenting, And I have to appreciate, I have to give him credit where credit is due. So after the first year, it worked out well that, um, that I had a set of skills that made me, I guess, valuable on, on the set and dealing with these actors who are terrific, but you know, they like having a line of communication to the executive producer, and, and that was me. And so I um, so I kind of helped everybody in that situation. So now they need me down there, and they were they said, well, well, we'll make it worth your while next year. What you never know in Hollywood is make it worth your while. They didn't say they're going to pay me more money. Well, they were. They'd pay me exactly what my contract said. They were willing to be flexible on the other things, credit, directing. That's how I got to direct. And then... Also, they made it worth my while money-wise in the third year. So now we're into the third year. I'm not complaining as much. I don't have a deal after this year. I don't know if I'm still as valuable. You know, this is uh a... know, this is how contracts are done in in entertainment and sports. You, you know, sometimes you have to suck it up, take a crappy deal for a year. and, And then if you prove your
0: worth, I guess that's happened. You eventually can get you get back to your old quote. So tell me your greatest holy shit moment of your career. The one that like the craziest thing that ever happened in your career that you can tell our audience about that you were privy to that many people weren't. That just blew you away.
3: Well, there've been some there've been I I, I have I have beautiful disappointments,
0: and I have a number of highlights. Uh, and these aren't just, this is one that isn't disappointment. This is like a story that's a fucking crazy thing that happened. Well, that, that Wish You Were Here
3: one where they're like, you're going you're going to Hungary. Like, you know, you've just won a trip <laughs> to Hungary on your own network television show. I mean, that was pretty great. Um, the other one was doing, um, the, my one-night stand was pretty fun where it was like, it was really a validation. The opening yeah. is terrible. I, my kid's still like, oh, my God, Dad, why did you do it? They didn't have any money for an opening, so I did this stupid, like, hammy bit with a set of sunglasses my kids like uh, they're they're so embarrassed by it it's it's unwatchable now i have the adam sandler wedding singer haircut it's all terrible but just getting i really had a good set it was one of those like it was one of those sets that you have before lenny clark not after lenny clark um but also oh by the way I, i should probably mention that you know it's stupid you don't measure by awards but sharing that uh that evening with the Raymond Riders where we won I, I think even this I think the second Emmy Award was a magical night because of a couple reasons one and the first the first time we won an Emmy Award so this is
0: your proudest moment it's really a proud it?
3: moment the first time I think I elbowed Liz as I scrambled for the aisle to go up and get the award um, as we went up on stage and I was like oh no am I ever going to get a chance to kiss my wife and not be in the doghouse for not kissing my wife? I was in the doghouse for a long time. She was very gracious. But when we won the second time, I made sure to give her a nice kiss, and I I probably should not have yelled, see, you happy now? But I did did not, and that was really fun. And what I'm saying, my dad taught a course at BU called Task-Oriented Groups, and it's about that team. My whole I, I, I've i loved every place I've ever worked. I love working in the supermarket. I love working at Villager Foods in, in, in uh, West Roxbury, Mass. I loved working at the Blue Mesa in Chicago. I love working at Camp Naomi. I love working. I loved working at American Dad. I loved working at, at every show and that show in particular. Everybody loves Raymond. We were a family. It was a show about a family. It felt like a family. Phil Rosenthal, all those writers. Tucker Cawley, Steve Scrovan, Mike Royce, Tom Caltabiano, Jeremy Stevens, every one of those guys, Aaron Shore, Ray, it was unbelievable. And to share that night with them, like – my favorite picture of all time. And also, our camera crew happened to be shooting the Emmys that year, a couple of guys. So the guy who stuck the camera in our face as we went up the aisle, and the guy was pulling cable, this guy Scott Spiegel. Like, there's a picture, a video capture of him, like, gunning us down with this camera as we walk up. And and he's, like, he's walking, but he's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. As we're walking up the aisle, it was the most incredible night. It was unbelievable. So, I mean, you don't do it for that, but you know, it's like the locker room, you know, when you win the championship to share it with those guys and, and, and those women on that night was the best thing ever.
0: Biggest disappointment in show business.
3: (laughs) My contract on old Christine did not get renewed. Um, I was expensive. They already had a guy doing what I was doing. And when you feel like you're like, and when I started there, I was great. Like she's the woman who ran the show said, you're such a breath of fresh air. I think the fresh air was off by the, like the middle of the second season. I worked there two years and she said, you know, we're not going to bring you back. She, by the way, she, uh, we, She's a great show and actually a very nice person. And she's actually asked me to help out on pilots since, but for whatever reason, it was not a great fit. Um, and I love working with Julia um, and we're friends, but uh, <laughs> they weren't bringing me back. And of course I got this news. My mom who has Alzheimer's, she was sort of in, in the earlier stages but she would, she can't remember what, what she just heard. So I'm at Costco. I take my mom to Costco and, um, we're coming out of Costco and I'm putting all the shit in the car and I get a call. I put it on speaker. Uh, can you hold? And it's, it's uh, the showrunner, And she says, Lou, you know, we're crunching the numbers and you're very expensive and we can't, uh, can't bring you back. And, uh. I was like, "Oh, uh, yeah, I get it. No, It's fine. I didn't. I didn't really want to go back." And so I clicked. My mother said, "So how's everything with work?" And I, <laughs> and I said, "Well, that was. It's funny. That's the, what you just heard was me being fired. That that I'm not. I'm not working on that show anymore." Oh, I'm so sorry. Are you okay, sweet? I am, Mom. Uh, I am. It's okay. It's okay. Ten, nine, eight. Ten seconds later. Tell me what's going on with work. <laughs> the worst groundhog day. That's like a whole way home. I got stuff that's spoiling from Costco, and I have to tell my mom 15 times that I've just been
0: fired. (laughs) All right, little six degrees of separation. Just tell me what comes to mind when I mention these people, okay? Yeah. All right. Jeff Garland. Jeff
3: Garland, the grand poobah of comedy. Um, Jeff Garland is amazing. Um, He is, I'll tell you what's the, the, this is the thing. Say what you will about Jeff. He is uncompromising in his, in his approach, in his standards. He and I have had some of the greatest times and some of the wickedest fights. And, and one of the things about Jeff is that he, uh, when I took this job, on the Goldbergs, when I went in for my interview, um, I didn't work on the pilot, and I go in for my uh, for my interview, and uh, the two producers, the two showrunners, execs, say, um, oh, what's what's up with Jeff? What's up? Do you feel, like I said, I know what you're saying, can I work with Jeff? Because he needs a certain amount of attention, individualized attention. My parents had diagnosed him with ADD, and he that's when he started, he actually then got, saw a doctor and started getting medicated. Um, I don't know if he still takes the stuff. Anyway, he, and I said- I I think I said, I, I know what you're asking. I said, I think we'll do pretty well together. And they said, well, he's dying to have you on the show. I said, okay, well, I think we'll do pretty well together. He may get sick of me and you may fire me after 13 weeks but let's see. And they said, no, no, don't worry. You're not going to be down there all the time. Adam will go down and then you'll just go down once, you know, like an hour a day just to spell Adam so he can go to editing. Uh, Long story short, after like the third week, they're like, you can never come back to the room. You are going to be down there. Jeff Mm -hmm. needs you down there. Mm -hmm. And so, and it's great. And I do love working with him and, and he is hilarious. And his greatest gift is he's like Gleason in that He's a loud, big, threatening-looking guy that no one's afraid of. He can yell and scream, and grumble and growl, and yet you still go, "Oh, we like that guy." And he, by the way, he he put me on Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is with Phil Rosenthal and Alan Kershman. We had a great time, and it's all because Jeff is, you know, likes hanging around with his friends. You know, he's
0: amazing. Jeff Foxworthy.
3: Uh, Again, I haven't worked with Fox in years, but, uh, but it was one of those things like we have no common background. Oh, he's a smart guy. We have no common background, but you know, comedians connect, you go to places, and you meet guys, and I went, can I digress for one second? In Boston, I was—I t- used to be so impatient that I used to think I had to blow guys off the stage. I'm not even the kind of act that ever blew anybody off the stage. Like you said, I was a nice guy, but I would—you you don't want to have—you don't want to show fear. So I'd work with these great comics, and I didn't know they were great. I didn't know who they were. So I'm working with this guy, Tom Kenny. Tom
0: Kenny was the voice of SpongeBob SquarePants, also <laughs> started with Bob Goldthwaite in Skinnyapolis, New York.
3: And was, yeah, and he was a great comic, and it might have been for you, or it might have been for Mike McDonald. But anyway, the, I think Mike said, which which one of you guys going to go first? And I was like, oh, he can go, I'll close. Tom Kenny blew me away. Like I forgot these guys are good. Same thing happened with Brian Regan. If you Brian's like I'll go first. Yeah, okay, I'll close. Brian Regan's the best comic in the world. <laughs> <laughs> like he's so good. It's unbelievable. I just love that I worked with these guys. I mean, you know. So like anyway. So Jeff is one of those other guys who I was happy to open for. He, he I learned a great deal from him. Bob Odenkirk. Bob Odenkirk. No one works harder than Bob Odenkirk. No one has. And I've never seen. A guy work harder and care more, and and like he's just fearless. He'll do something on a hunch, and and it's not always great. But you know what? Every movie Tom Hanks makes is not great, but Bob Odenkirk he he is stunningly good. Colin Quinn. Uh, Colin, I haven't seen him in years. Would love to see him. I always thought that he was just. You know, like Reggie and I still
0: John Reggie, who was a great comedian and also a great showrunner.
3: John Reggie is my son. My son's godfather. He's, uh, he was one of the great bright spots in our life in the Midwest. And um, yeah, we still do impersonations of Colin Quinn. We bite our when, every time we bite our fingers and bite our knuckles. It's in honor of Colin Quinn. <laughs> Larry David. Uh, Larry David, One of the, I uh, my favorite Larry David story, um, we're playing in a charity golf tournament. Um, Tucker, Callie, and I, uh, a Raymond Ryder, were, were paired with Larry David. It was always very particular. He liked the hell Larry David knows is better than the hell he doesn't know. So he knew me. He said, uh, you're playing in a tournament? Uh, play with me. Play playing in the same group. Cause, yeah, because you don't want to have to be nice to people. Uh, yeah, don't worry about it. So, okay, so Larry and Tucker and I are playing with uh i don't know two two paid people you know people play to pay with us pay to play with a celebrity and then we got put, thrown in with them so we're on the first hole it's very windy we're playing some course out in the canyon country and it's freezing and okay so we're playing larry's first two shots are less than spectacular and he's a good golfer so he's mad tucker and i suck we don't care so so tucker says larry how you doing how am i doing i'm well I'm very well. So he drives. He's not observing the rules of golf etiquette. People you know you're supposed to wait for other people to hit and then drive your cart up. Larry, fuck that. He's driving his cart up. He's driving when other people are hitting. He doesn't give a shit. We get on the we get on the green. I have a very, very far putt that my putt is like, you know, like a 60 footer. Larry's much closer. So he's sort of standing kind of in between because I'm putting first because I'm away. Larry's standing probably like twelve, fourteen feet away from the hole. And oh and, and so <laughs> Larry. Larry goes, fuck this. This is terrible. I'm walking off. I go, Larry, it's for children's cancer. You can't really walk. (laughs) Larry goes, I'll give him. I'm standing over my putt, and I'm arguing with him. It's it's the first hole. And I go, Larry, you can't walk off. And he goes, I'll give everybody $500 to let me leave. And it makes me laugh so hard that a little bit of spittle (laughs) flies out of my mouth. And it's like in the episode of Seinfeld. I don't know if he remembers this. I spit into the wind. And it catches a breeze, just so. And my little bit of spittle flies right into Larry's mouth. And Larry goes, what the fuck was that? What the fuck was that? And I go, I'm sorry. And he goes, did you just spit at me? I "I didn't spit at you, Larry. He goes, holy shit. This is the worst day I've ever had. And now people want to take pictures of him because now like, guess they have the charity people want to get pictures. About the 15th hole, it's freezing. Larry goes, and I'm wearing a short sleeve shirt. It hadn't been that cold. Larry goes, you don't have anything, do you? You don't have a, you don't have a windbreaker, do you? I go, no. He goes, oh, Jesus Christ. He opens his bag in, in anger, throws a, a anorak, a, 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 a pullover to me. He goes, make sure you give that back in the 18th. I want you. We've driven together. I drove him. He goes, make, don't just keep it in the car, either. You give it to me in the car. I don't want you using this as a choose to pal around. Ray Romano. Oh, boy. Ray Romano. Ray Romano is the least changed man who's who's become a superstar ever ever he's a brilliant comedian he's gotten no nicer or no meaner he's exactly the same great guy and some of the i I have more fun with ray oh my god when ray uh (laughs) We've played some terrible—we used to vacation with those guys. And my favorite story is just just zero ego involved. Working with him on Men of a Certain Age, fantastic. That was the show—that was one of the biggest disappointments of my life. When that thing didn't continue, we won a Peabody Award. When that show didn't continue, I thought, this is it. I'm just going to work with these guys and write the stories of our lives until I quit the business and become a camp director or— you know, do something for charity or work with kids. Like, I, I don't, it'll never get any better than this. Well, the show dies, but Ray, my favorite story, one of my, I have a million Ray stories. One of my favorites is Ray is feeling romantic. He's in bed with Anna, feels romantic, puts a hand on her hip. Things are going to get going. Her response, what's your problem? <laughs> and that and Ray thinks that's hilarious if you know Ray Romano you know why it's hilarious Ray is just that guy like no one takes a greater I mean no one takes more joy in his own humbling experiences than Ray Romano and I'm I mod- if I could be half as 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 self-hating as Ray Romano I think I've done something great in this world fantastic last
0: question what advice would you have for the young comedian young improviser Mm -hmm. working at Second City or anywhere or just a young stand-up in this business to get to the next level and start booking sitcoms and shows and then Becoming the writer that you are today, and executive producer you are today, I think that's important for people to know what you feel will get them to have the kind of career that you've had.
3: It's funny because i've 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 taught i've taught at Penn. I when when I one of the times I was out of work, I'd always taught thought about teaching, um, and so I taught this course in comedy development, which is it was called. Um, uh, it's funny because it's true and you write from a place of truth. You, you, you have to be, you know, it's, it's a Shakespearean thing to thine own self be true, but you really, you can't, I didn't, when I was in Boston, I didn't know who I was. I think I'd be a better stand-up now because you're supposed to write what you know. I'd only known 25 years of things. I've lived 50 years now. I have 54. Now I've lived 54 years. I gotta be a better comedian now than I was. And it's the same thing with writing. Write what you know. Don't rush yourself Go to work every day and just do what you're supposed to do. I've had, I've, I've talked to comedians like, what do I do now? What do I do now? So-and-so got a deal. So-and-so got a deal. And I didn't get a deal. I said, what joke did you write today? What did you write a joke today? What did you do? Produce something, write something. And, and you know, the other part you touched on, which is I've been very lucky because, you know, I don't know. Freud lucky. Well, yeah. Freud said love and work, right? I don't know. I, someone said that Freud said that. And I think that I just believe if you're happy in your life, which is the love part, you can then put all that energy that you would otherwise be crippled But, you know, with expending into your work. And so that doesn't mean you neglect your 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 dear ones. But you, you know, because because I have kids that and I have a wife that that, you know, are solid, I can now concentrate on what I'm doing. And then, by the way, I'm not consumed by that. I want to go back to those people. Showbiz can be important, but it can't be it can't be all you do. It can't be work as hard as you can when you're there. And when you're not there, go home.
0: Awesome, Lou Schneider, Liz Abbey. You know, I get emotional because it's a beautiful, beautiful episode, and you guys are an inspiration. And you specifically, Lou, professionally, are just—you're an amazing guy. And it's no wonder that everybody who you meet wants to work with you again and again and again. Thank you so much, buddy.
3: It's my pleasure, my absolute pleasure. Truth be told, pleasure. Relationships, people.
1: They say. I'll scream your name and put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame, you get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you because you're going for life is for the dreamer. They have all to gate, It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortunate